Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over a 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to BlackTalkRadioNetwork.com. Helping you filter through the noise. Real talk. Black talk. The internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit WorldAfropedia.com, the African-centered encyclopedia a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. WorldAfropedia.com Population control Population control Population control The United Nations says there will be two and a half billion more people on the planet by 2050. Each will likely create more carbon emissions, and scientists say those emissions could reach a dangerous tipping point by mid-century. To avoid a disaster, one man is proposing a radical idea. As NPR's Jennifer Ludden reports, he aims to convince people to have fewer children. Travis Reeder is not a climate scientist. He's a philosopher with the Berman Institute of Bioethics at Johns Hopkins, and his arguments are moral. When we meet, he's in a tweedy jacket and sneakers, speaking to several dozen students at James Madison University. How old are you going to be in 2036? Are you thinking about having kids? How old are your kids going to be in 2036? Dangerous climate change will be happening by then, he says, and the world's poorest nations will suffer most even though rich countries like the U.S. create far more carbon emissions per capita. So here's what's happening when I have a kid. I'm creating a being who's doing the much greater proportion of the contribution to the harm, and she's not going to suffer for it. The other kid is. And that seems unfair. What about that big climate deal in Paris? Reader tells students it doesn't cut emissions nearly enough to avoid a catastrophic tipping point. But this might... He cites a study that finds reducing global fertility by just half a child per woman could have a huge impact if it happens soon. Thank you all for your attention. It was kind of terrifying. Student Garrett Wilson says before this, he never would have connected climate and kids. Valerie Smith has thought about that. 
She's even argued with her mom over it. We always have people asking, well, why wouldn't you have kids? And I think it's a great point that he makes saying, well, no, like you don't have to explain yourself. The people who are choosing to have children, like maybe they're the ones that need to explain their reasons. The people choosing to have children? That's right. It includes Reader. At home in Maryland, his two-year-old daughter, Sinem, stands at the knee of his wife, Sadia. I have been one of those women who actually craved to have a baby, to go through pregnancy and everything. That mattered to me a lot. In fact, Sadia wanted a big family. So Reader caved, sort of. He decided you can't deny someone the hardwired human fulfillment of creating a child. But he also convinced Sadia that the moral bar for a second one is higher. They are one and done. When I write online, I get some nasty comments. And a lot of the things that people say is, well, he obviously doesn't have any children the way he talks about it. So look, I think it's important that I exactly know the value. She's the most amazing thing we've ever done with our lives. So how do you convince millions of people around the world to forego that? Reader has a plan, along with colleagues at Georgetown University, Colin Hickey and Jake Earle. For poor nations, they propose paying women to refill their birth control and something with proven success. Soap operas, like this Indian one, with plot lines on family planning. For richer nations, Reader says the U.S. and others should do away with tax credits for new parents and actually impose penalties, like a carbon tax, on kids. And he knows that sounds crazy. But children, in a cold way of looking at it, are an externality. We as parents, we as family members, we get the good, and the world, the community, pays the cost. What that will actually translate into is it becoming much easier for wealthy people to have children than for other people to have children. Rebecca Kukla is a bioethicist at Georgetown University. She also worries that poor and minority women who have more children would be stigmatized. Of course, Travis Reeder does not expect the U.S. or other countries to embrace his ideas. He'd be happy to simply change people's assumptions about having kids. But still... Compared to so many ideas for addressing climate change, he says this would be easy. It's not a feat of geoengineering or econoengineering. We know exactly how to make fewer babies. And he says it's something people can start doing today. Jennifer Ludden, NPR News. You're supposed to be in a position to help. You should do that. You should help, not hinder. Tonight, that mom's accusing a Petersburg firefighter of racism. He refused to give her a bag of ice. 8 News reporter Nikel Williams spoke with her and has more on what happened in this 8 News exclusive. I thought it was a black white thing. You know, I hate to say it and I hate to call a spade a spade, but as the children say, it is what it is. You know, and it's the truth. I felt like it was a, it was a racial thing. Stacy Claiborne is a full-time nurse and a mom of Deshaun Trippy. She was driving on Johnson Road last week when he had his most recent. I was like two seconds from the firehouse. Go to the firehouse. I tell my oldest son, say, hey, take this glove, go to the firehouse, ask the fireman to get you some ice in his gloves so I can get on your brother's nose so I can get his nosebleed under control. Claiborne says a firefighter turns him away. So my son comes back and says, um, the fireman 
told me I can't get any ices for their personal use. Taking matters into her own hands, she goes inside the fire station, and for a moment, she thought she'd get some help. I met with another different fireman, and he said, um, said can I get some ice? My son's having a bad nosebleed. I just need the ice to get his nosebleed under control. So he said, sure, ma'am, I'll get it for you. But then... The fireman came around the corner. They told my son that he couldn't have no ice. He told that gentleman, I said, don't give her no ice. Go out to the car and find out what's going on. Meanwhile, the 11-year-old's nose is still bleeding. He comes out, paper and clipboard in hand, started asking me questions. What's my son's name? How old is he? And I'm telling him that's not relevant information right now. I, don't, I just need ice for my son's nose. Cleborne says after the firefighter told her she didn't know what her son needed, she left without any help. Oh, now you were one lucky nigger. Why haven't you learned anything? Well, two Choctaw County high school students have been suspended for the rest of the semester after admitting to beating a fellow student. Happened after their sister claimed that she was called the N-word. News 12's Michael Deere explains how the father ended up under arrest after talking to the principal. The Choctaw County Sheriff's Office remained outside of Fort Towson High School Monday amid tensions from an incident involving four students last week. The Jones family believes... The administration has failed to deal with ongoing issues between their three black children and a white student. Last Thursday, Rashonda Jones says the white student directed a racial slur at her while in the gym. He walked up to me and said, you're N-word. And so I had no idea why he called me that at all. She told her brothers what happened and they found the teen boy that day and took matters into their own hands. They admit they punched and stomped him in a stairwell at the school. They don't know how badly they beat him, but say that they've been told he went to the hospital. My son is going to be 17 next week. I have dealt with this all of their lives. I have to deal with her coming home crying. She loves to go to school. She wants to go to school now, but I don't want to send her over there if I can't be there. The Jones boys, a sophomore and junior at the school, were suspended for the rest of this semester. The other kid has also been suspended, but the district would not say how long. When the parents went to the school to talk to the principal, things escalated. Well, they said I hit Mr. Hall upside the head and beat him all up and didn't touch the man. He touched the door. And I touched the door to open the door. He pushed the door back okay. away from me, and that's the only and then the contact we had. To come over, and he said, "I want y'all to leave." After speaking with the under sheriff, Mr. Jones willingly went to the Choctaw County Sheriff's Office, where he was arrested for assault and battery. He has been banned from school premises until a school board hearing in March. Sheriff Terry Park says due to social media threats made over the weekend, he and his deputies will remain at the school for several more days. We at the Choctaw County Sheriff's Department have decided to sit here for a few days to make sure that those children that want to attend school and get their learning is able to have a safe and, and peaceful environment. The school district refused to comment on this story. In Fort Towson, Michael Deere, News 12. Because ugly white women used to say they got raped by niggas. <laughs> hey, a nigger raped me. Yeah, and the guys be going, hey, you sure? <laughs> yeah, they go round up some niggas, you know, like, oh, you were down last week, you know what to do, don't you? Well, come on down again, will you? We got to have a lineup. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was a lot of fun unless you got picked. That was your ass. <laughs> mm.
It's been an awkward week if you're a fan of Nate Parker, the Hollywood actor, director, writer, and producer who broke records by acquiring $17.5 million in funding from Fox Searchlight after his film Birth of a Nation, Wild Crowds at the Sundance Film Festival in January, has had an old rape accusation resurface and the details are troubling. He was accused and later acquitted of sexual assault back in 1999 when he was a college student at Penn State, a case that involved his then roommate, who actually happens to be a co-writer on the movie, that many expect to get a lot of Oscar buzz. Today, another bombshell dropped in which reports say the said woman involved, in fact, committed suicide in 2012. Look, shady movie types are nothing new in Hollywood. See Bill Cosby, Woody Allen, Roman Polanski, just to name a few. But this, this feels gross at this moment. The story of the slave revolt of Nat Turner back in 1831 is an important one, but so is the history of the man telling said tale. I'm Clinton Yates, and that's my take. The Birth of a Nation, a new movie based on the story of Nat Turner's slave rebellion in 1831, was poised to be one of the breakout films of the year. The same was said of its star and director, Nate Parker. That's now in question as new details have surfaced about Parker's past. In 1999, Parker and his film's co-writer, Jean Celestin, his college roommates at that time, were accused of the rape of a fellow student at Penn State. Parker was acquitted of the crime. The accuser died by suicide in 2012. The allegations resurfaced in the last week thanks to the spotlight brought on by the buzz of the new film. Earlier today, I spoke with Brent Lang about the case. He's a reporter with Variety magazine. And a warning to our listeners, this is going to be a detailed conversation about sexual assault. Mr. Celestin and Mr. Parker were accused of uh, raping the female in question. She claimed that after a night of drinking, she passed out at Mr. Parker's uh, apartment and she awoke to find out that she was having intercourse, uh, not even just with Mr. Parker, but with, with his roommate. Mr. Parker and Mr. Celestin both acknowledged that they had a sexual encounter with the woman, but they claimed that it was consensual. How did these trials end? So Mr. Parker was exonerated in his trial, and part of the reason that the jury uh, found him to be not guilty seems to be the fact that he had had a consensual sexual encounter with the female the day before the alleged rape took place. Mr. Celestin was found guilty, but that verdict was later overturned, and a retrial never took place, um, reportedly because the accuser was uncomfortable with having to testify again. Now, what new information has come out that's forced us back into the spotlight? Well, two things there. First of all, uh, Mr. Parker's public profile was relatively low. So even though this was a piece of his biography that was publicly available on Wikipedia and he had answered some questions in the media about it before, it was not widely known. It also came out this week, Variety reported, that the female accuser actually ended up committing suicide in 2012. Nate Parker hasn't been shy about trying to explain this. He's tried to speak out in the last uh, few days. What has he had to say? Yes, um, Mr. Parker posted a message on Facebook in which he expressed sympathy for the woman and her family, saying that you know he, he acknowledged that this trial had been an ordeal, but he, he maintained his innocence. Um, and the woman's family is, is somewhat divided. A statement from the family to the New York Times said that they sort of questioned the motivation for why this was, was coming out again uh, and said that they wanted people to respect their privacy. But some family members um, have spoken to media 
indicating that, th that they are upset that Mr. Parker is receiving some public attention for this movie and that they are still angry about the uh, legal process. What's distinctive about the way Nate Parker is responding to all this? As we said, he was acquitted. He's talked about being cleared of wrongdoing, yet it seems like he's taken a different approach than we've seen other Hollywood figures who have had accusations of sexual assault and other charges uh, kind of thrown their way. Well, I think he seems to be wanting to try to take this head on. Uh, he did sit for interviews with a number of publications. Some of that may have been a, an effort to hopefully answer those questions and to get it behind him in advance of the film's release later this year. It's unclear if this will end up working. Uh, crisis PR veterans seem to be somewhat divided about uh, the wisdom of this move. They seem to think that in some ways he maybe opened himself up to more questions. That's Brent Lang, a senior reporter for Variety magazine. Thanks for speaking with us. Thanks for having me. Come here, Susie. You remember me? Your daddy's friend, Henry? I, I, no, don't. I'm Heather Vogel with ProPublica, and I'm talking today with three reporters from the Indy Star newspaper, Marissa Kwiatkowski, Mark Alicia, and Tim Evans about their incredible report on sexual misconduct by gymnastics coaches affiliated with USA Gymnastics, the nonprofit responsible for developing the United States gymnastics team for the Olympics. The reporters discovered that the organization had a policy related to reporting such abuse that was almost sure, experts say, to discourage people from speaking up about it. These are stunning revelations on a subject that's very hard to report, and I imagine the gymnastics world is pretty insular. So first of all, just kudos to all of you for your hard work bringing this to light. And I know that work isn't done yet. Thanks, Marissa, Mark, and Tim for being here. I'm hoping you all can just tell me a little bit about how you first got onto this story. Sure. So we initially received a tip about this story out of other reporting that we've been doing about failures to report child sexual abuse in local school districts and daycares. And as we were doing sort of a broader story about why is this so common, why does this keep happening in all of these different locations, we received a tip about USA Gymnastics having a policy of not reporting all allegations of sexual abuse involving its coaches. Now tell me a little bit, first of all, what USA Gymnastics is, just for listeners who may not be completely aware of the organization. Why is it important and why are you all interested in Indiana in it? Uh, USA Gymnastics is uh, the legally designated national governing body for the sport in the United States. It is responsible for not only developing and producing Olympic teams and teams for international competition, but also sanctioning competition at the local level. Its members include 3,000 gyms nationwide, I think it's about 121,000 athletes and coaches. The members range all the way from the uh, people you'll see at the Olympics to kids just getting started in, in the sport, not even at a competitive level. It's a nonprofit, right? It is. And do they hire the coaches or is it the gyms that hire the coaches? Is there sort of a step between them, um, but they do certify them? Is that how it works? Or what is the process? What is their relationship with the coaches? They don't hire the coaches. The coaches are members, 
and they uh, must adhere to standards set by USA Gymnastics. And um, USA Gymnastics is headquartered in, in Indianapolis, so that's one another reason that you know we were keenly interested in this. But they don't hire or directly supervise the coaches. Tell me some more about that policy that you got the tip about. You didn't actually get a tip about a case in that instance. You actually started with a policy. Is that right? We had received a tip about sort of a broader policy of handling, but the revelations of that policy, the officials talking about that policy, did come out of a court case in Georgia. And basically what we found through, you know, depositions and other records in the case is that Two former USA Gymnastics executives said that they had a policy of dismissing allegations of sexual abuse as hearsay unless they came directly from a victim or a victim's parent, which is something that legal and child welfare advocates told us is not a good policy to have. How is this similar and how is it different from what the newspaper had found in schools and daycares, for instance? Was this a gray area or was this clearly a problem. I mean, how did you draw this particular organization sort of into your view of looking at how this uh, mandatory reporter laws work? I think what makes this different from the writing that we had done and the investigations that we'd done relating to public and private schools and daycares failing to report is that those were really individual officials' decision-making. The assistant principal who was talking to HR or it was the head of school who didn't make the report or something like that. What made USA Gymnastics different through our investigation is that they actually had a policy, an executive policy, of how they handle all of these allegations. So it wasn't just a case-by-case basis. It was more of a broad policy for handling these And that policy was, on its face, problematic. Tell me some more about that and why it was problematic. Well, what legal and child welfare experts told us is that this policy sort of flies in the face of best practice because, you know, often the victim doesn't want to put that in writing or go straight to authorities. They may tell a friend or a trusted adult or someone like that, but they're actually putting it in writing and sending it to the organization you know, in some ways, experts told us is a deterrent to reporting. Because it, it creates a hurdle? Partly because of what uh, Marissa said, and then also partly because of uh, a message that we've been told by people that it sends a message uh, to other victims out there that the hurdles are so high that nothing's going to happen anyways, and often people are reluctant to come forward anyways. And if it's a, if you make the hurdle even higher than it needs to be, then you're not helping things. You said in, in a video that accompanied your articles that uh, sexual misconduct has haunted USA Gymnastics for decades. Can you tell me and also explain to listeners a little bit more about that? I mean, people are probably aware of things that have occasionally popped up in the news, but did you all start looking a little bit at the history of the organization we did. USA Gymnastics uh, started what uh, they call a list of permanently ineligible members. We've just been calling it the band coaches list. There are currently 107 people on that list, and it goes back to the 1990s. And one of the things we did was we looked at this list as it was published in two USA Gymnastics publications that are on, uh, available online going back to the 70s. And we plotted when some of these coaches started showing up 
on the list compared to when they were convicted. And we found in numerous situations there were long lapses of time between when a person was convicted and when they showed up on this banned coaches list. So the idea of this issue going back uh, decades pretty much just comes from that, from the banned coaches list. So that gave you a sense of a little bit of the scope of what could be out there, I would imagine, from looking at historically. And you would probably know that what you were seeing was only the tip of the iceberg, knowing that so many of these cases don't end up in convictions, certainly. That and, and just to add on to that, in depositions in the court case with former USA Gymnastics presidents, they did, dating back into the 90s, talk about that that was an issue that they were dealing with back then as well. So there's also, you know, not only documentation and, and records, but there's testimony about how this has been something that they've been needing to address for a long time. And, and since our story, we've had people come forward and, and say it's been going on much longer than you think. We've had people say it's been going on since the 70s and the 80s. And, um, you know, there are a lot of uh, documented cases, uh, newspaper articles, those kind of things. So it's probably not unique to USA Gymnastics. It's, uh, you know, it's been a societal problem, and it shows up in lots of youth-serving organizations. Yeah, and why don't you tell me a little bit more uh, about the reaction to the story? Were you just hearing mostly about more cases involving USA Gymnastics? Was it, as you suggested, other different youth-serving organizations? Or how much have your phones been ringing since you published? <laughs> we set up a hotline and also a, an email address a box to, to take stories. And um, we, we've uh, had been swamped with calls and emails, many about USA Gymnastics specifically, but others about other organizations. Um, and our effort in this always was to take a deeper look and, and, a, and a broader look. If people that are listening to this have stories they'd like to share with us, uh, the hotline number is 317-444-6262, 317-444-6262, or they can email us at investigations with an S at indystar.com. Um, as this goes on, we'll be broadening out looking at other organizations and the, the broader issue of failure to report and the horrible impact that has on the on the victims and survivors. Now tell me a little bit more about the, the Jane Doe lawsuit that was filed in April in Georgia. That was William McCabe, correct? Correct. William McCabe was a coach and a then USA Gymnastics member who worked in a number of states, including Florida and Georgia. We also have some indication that he may have been in Pennsylvania and Ohio as well, and a number of other states. But allegations followed William McCabe throughout his coaching career. And we know that through those court records and through that lawsuit, that USA Gymnastics became aware of William McCabe and allegations of misconduct against him as early as 1998 when several gym owners sent letters to USA Gymnastics expressing concern about how he was interacting with people in the gym, underage individuals in the gym. For example, he said that he had gotten a 15-year-old down to her underwear and wanted to sleep with her very soon, and different things like that. And so the lawsuit relates to a young woman, a victim, who was secretly videotaped while she was changing clothes in McCabe's gym, and that was in 2006. Five is when it was happening, but he was charged in 2006. And then uh, one quick clarification. Um, you mentioned that the lawsuit was filed in April. That was actually when the plaintiff filed an amended 
complaint. The lawsuit's actually uh, uh, almost, I think, more than three years old now. 2013, I think, yeah. is when it filed. Now, you spoke with one of the victim's mothers, correct? We, we've spoken with a number of, of victims and, and victims' parents. Do you mean specific to the Georgia suit? Yes. What did she tell you, and what, how did she view the situation? What was her take on what had happened and on what USA Gymnastics had to do with it, essentially? I'm going to let Marissa answer that, but I want to just interject one thing. Marissa did the interview, but one of the things that stood out the most to me was the, the comment that he could have been stopped long before he got to our town. And that, that is just that kind of at the heart of it. And it's what we've seen looking at many other coaches where they bounce from gym to gym. Um, people either re- don't report them or they get in trouble and they quietly leave town and go to another gym. And, you know, McCabe went around for maybe 10 years. And that summed up the interview. But Marissa can tell you more in detail. Yeah, I think Kim did a great job of sort of summing up her thought process. And what she told us was that she feels that USA Gymnastics failed and that USA Gymnastics had enough information to have done something about it. And she said, it didn't have to happen to my daughter, and it didn't have to happen to other little girls. Wow, that's um, really powerful. Can you tell me about the three other cases that you tracked down details about? Sure. Well, one was local. Uh, It involved uh, a coach of two Olympians named Marvin Sharp from Indianapolis. And uh, he was arrested last year, late last year, on child abuse charges. And he ended up killing himself in jail. And we were able to find a letter that had been sent to USA Gymnastics four years earlier expressing concerns, detailed concerns, and saying he shouldn't be around children. They did not uh, report that to law enforcement. They did, however, report in late 2015, USA Gymnastics, they are the ones who reported to law enforcement, reported Marvin Sharp after receiving another complaint, and uh, that led to his arrest. But four years earlier, they did nothing. There's another case in Tennessee, a man by the name of Mark Schiefelbein, who had uh, bounced from gym to gym over the years, sort of a classic case of complaints having been compiled. Um, The victim's father said it was a file three inches thick when it was finally revealed in court. Uh, The victim was 10 years old, had been molested for about a year, told her mother finally. They reported him to authorities. Uh, There was a trial. He was convicted, uh, sent to jail for 96 years. That was later reduced to 36. But what was unique about that situation is the family and the victim, who's now 26, uh, herself a mother, spoke very openly, very movingly to us, especially, well, they're all on the record, especially Becca Seaborn was the victim, and she, we did a whole story on her, and it was uh, deeply moving. The parents, of course, are outraged at USA Gymnastics not having warned anyone about the, about the coach. And Becca, I thought, was quite brave in trying to talk about how those incidents, having been molested, doesn't define her for the rest of her life. Then there was one more, and Marissa knows more about that one, James Bell. 
So we know through court records that USA Gymnastics had a sexual misconduct complaint file about Coach James Bell at least five years before he was arrested in Rhode Island in 2003 for molesting three young gymnasts. And we don't know what allegations were contained in that file. We know through records that USA Gymnastics compiled at least 54 complaint files um, relating to allegations of sexual misconduct against 54 coaches between 1996 and 2006. And we know that James, is, James Bell is one of those files, but we have a motion to intervene in the lawsuit in Georgia to try and get access to those documents and make them available to the public to see how they were handled by USA Gymnastics. But specific to James Bell, when we investigated his background, we found prior police reports about him in Oregon dating back to 1990. There was an underage gymnast who told police that Bell had climbed on top of her and wanted to take off her pants. In 91, there was a 10-year-old gymnast who said that Bell stuck his hand inside her shirt and had pinched her chest. But he wasn't charged in those cases, and he continued coaching until he was reported to police in Rhode Island for that case. And he actually was only sentenced last year, so he was charged in 2003, but he went on the run in 2004 and eluded authorities until 2015, spring of last year, when he was ultimately caught and pleaded guilty. Wow. And this is a guy, this is a guy who was... Uh, on America's Most Wanted, and he was on a, a, among Rhode Island's Most Wanted list, but he wasn't on the USA Gymnastics Band Coaches list. That's incredible. <laughs> this feels, this feels gross, gross. I am not a role model. I'm not paid to be a role model. I am paid to wreak havoc on the basketball court. Time and again, Olympic officials stress the games are not a place for politics. It's a time for athletes to rise above. Well, one Olympian who disagrees is John Carlos. He won the bronze medal for the 200-meter dash in the 1968 Mexico City Olympics. Along with gold medalist Tommy Smith, he became famous for one powerful gesture at the medal ceremony. The two black athletes raised their fists during the national anthem. It was an act of protest over racial inequality, and it caused an uproar. John Carlos joined us from his home in Georgia. And remind us of that moment. Um, how much of a political statement did you intend to make? Well, we were, we were making a humanitarian statement. Now, if you have to cross the lines of politicism, then uh, so be it. But uh, we were there basically making concerns about people that was less fortunate in this society in which we live. Although at the time, with that clenched fist, it was read by many as a black power salute. Now, and I, don't this think, at a time... I, don't think, I don't believe it was read by many as a black power salute. I think what happened was I think they were influenced by headlines by the right-wing press that was put out there uh, relative to us being black militants and we're trying to burn down America and burn down the Statue of Liberty, which was total nonsense. So it wasn't in your for you or Tommy Smith a black power salute? Uh, only black, black power was our black butts running down that track. That was the power right there in itself. Years later, John Carlos would say he could still feel fire. 
But immediately after making that statement on the Olympic podium, life, he says, was hell. Over the next decade, Carlos says he lost friends, his family came under fire, and after his marriage fell apart, his wife committed suicide. But still, John Carlos remained active in the world of sports. So now, 48 years later, um, you've spoken out for black athletes. You've also written, and I'm quoting here, if you're famous and you're black, you have to be an activist. Well, I, I think that if, you, if you're famous and you're black, you have an opportunity to be a voice for the voiceless. Uh, it's your responsibility to, to realize that although you made it in this bubble, so to speak, 99.9% of the people from your environment has not made it in that bubble. If I stood on 125th Street in front of Apollo and, and, and said certain things, I don't think I would reach as many people as I would have reached had going out going to Mexico City to speak about the issues. Mm. Are you watching the Olympics? Yes. Uh, matter of fact, I'm missing the Olympics right now as I'm interviewing with you. When you watch uh, the Olympics today, do you see any difference at all? I mean, you know, Usain Bolt, for heaven's sakes. Do you see a different world from the world that that you were in in 1968 in Mexico City? Well, you know, let me, let me tell you something. You know, Mr. Bolt is doing a fantastic job in terms of promoting the sport of track and field, and I could say athletics in general. Uh, the young black swimmer, the, the first black woman to, to win a gold medal. You know, I sit back and I marvel about her because that was my ideas as a young kid, seven, eight years old, to go to the Olympic Games as a swimmer, telling my dad I was going to be the first black swimmer to represent America. But based on the, the color of my skin, that wasn't possible at that particular time. So for her to be there, it, it just bewilders me as to how much time is taken before we can see a black man or a black woman in, in the swimming pool and doing well to represent America. You know, racism and prejudice and bias is a very uh, serious illness that we have in society that we need to uh, doctor up and try and have these things resolved. Would you imagine any of these young athletes that you're looking at raising a fist in protest in the way that you did? You know, life is like a finger painting. You understand? Remember when you was in grade school and they gave you a piece of paper and the paint and tell you to do your thing? Well, that's what everyone has to do is their thing. They can't do my thing. They have to do their own thing. Well, Dr. Carlos, uh, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much. I might add at the same time, the Olympic Games is still the greatest sporting spectacle in the world. And I would just hope that we would get to the point where we can resolve all of these social issues and political issues that we have. You know, you started out saying about a political statement. And, you know, people put emphasis on that we were the ones that brought politics to the Olympic Games. But I notice every time I see an athlete win, regardless of what nation it is, the first thing they do is throw a flag down to the kid. Is that not politics? Hmm. That was John Carlos, who won a bronze medal in the 1968 Olympics. Let's bring in my man, Charles Barkley, of course, a basketball Hall of Famer, two-time Olympic gold medalist, and uh, just one of the greatest uh, people of all time hanging out with us here right now. And, and Charles, thanks for, so much for hanging out with me today, man. And first of all, I got to get your opinion on this whole Ryan Lochte situation. Apparently, he's fabricated this situation. If he has fabricated this story, what do you think should be the proper punishment, if punishment should be uh, given to him at all? Well, I don't think there's a, a punishment. I think that he's learned a very valuable lesson. Listen, being famous or in the limelight, it's great two out of three times. 
when you're doing great, it's great. When you get your paycheck, it's great. But when you do something wrong, it sucks. So it's a good learning experience for him. I mean, being famous, it's great two out of three times. <laughs> but when you do something wrong or you lose, it's awful. Uh, but every time, you know, when they talk good about you when you're winning and you get your paycheck, it's great. So, uh, I mean, uh, it, it was obviously stupid to do, but uh, he's a young kid, and uh, hey, all young kids do stupid stuff. I'm Carol Hills, and this is The World. It's day 13 of the Rio Olympics, and it seems everyone in Rio and beyond wants to know, did Ryan Lochte and three other U.S. Olympic swimmers make up that story about being robbed at gunpoint? That's what authorities in Brazil have been saying today, and that's why two of the four swimmers were unceremoniously pulled off a plane last night just as they were about to leave the country. Earlier, I spoke with the world's Will Carlos in Rio to find out what police are alleging. They're saying that the swimmers just simply lied about being attacked, about being robbed. And that what seems to have happened was that in the early hours of Sunday morning, there was some sort of an altercation at a gas station. Apparently, the swimmers barged through a toilet door, barged through it, were then confronted by a security guard. And then um, after some discussion, paid for the damage that was caused, I guess, on the spot with cash. So a little bit different to a robbing. Now, of course, that's not completely confirmed, but that's what police sources are telling media uh, across Brazil and international media too. Do we know yet whether the swimmers were intoxicated when all of this did or did not happen? Uh, yeah, well, we do. I mean, they've, they've admitted that they were. What do Brazilians make of all this? Brazilians are, you know, they, they started off with sort of a bit of frustration and sort of going, oh, you know, things were going so well and now we've had this high-profile attack and isn't it a shame? To um, now, that, I mean, very quickly, very early on, the moment the suggestion came out that, that Lochte might be uh, not telling the truth on this, Brazilians got on social media and started really kind of pouring scorn on these guys. They've become, they've become real villains here. And it's really making the whole, it should be said, it's casting a new light on, on the whole Olympic team here, the U.S. Olympic team, um, when, when you have these ambassadors for the team, apparent, uh, at the very least sort of acting like, you know, high school kids or at least college kids, it, it doesn't reflect well on the whole U.S. team. And I think it's, it's really been an opportunity for people who, who have some criticism of the United States to, to kind of come out and make that criticism heard. What about the feeling that it was kind of melodramatic for Brazilian officials to pull these two guys off the plane, two of the swimmers? If if there was a warrant, why why didn't they just get barred at check in? It, it all seems a little. It seems to some people like a little overkill. Yeah, I mean, you know, as far as the the sort of the technicalities of it, why were they pulled off the plane and not not stopped at check in? I mean, Brazil's not the most organized of places. I mean, you know, Ryan Lochte arguably uh, should have been stopped from leaving, but he got on a plane. Um, now, as far as as far as you know, were, were they justified in kind of going and finding these guys? Uh, you'll get mixed responses on that. I mean, I, I would urge listeners to sort of put this the other way around and say, imagine these were two Brazilian athletes in the United States who are accused of what's really quite a serious crime. I mean, making a false accusation um, of a crime is is it in itself a crime in Brazil. I, I think most people would see the American authorities as fully within their rights to, to stop these people from, from leaving the United States. Is anyone giving any any indication of why they made this up in the first place? 
That's the million dollar question. And I mean, there are all sorts of theories flying around. There are people saying, you know, could it be he was trying to sort of make excuses to his girlfriend back home as to why he was out so late or to his mom? I guess the the genesis of all of this was a conversation that Ryan Lochte had with his mother, which then uh, I believe she then went to the media and sort of reported this. And he was then interviewed by NBC News and sort of went and said everything that had happened. But I mean, who knows? I mean, were they so drunk that they didn't realize that the security guard was really a security guard and that when they were paying over for the damage they weren't really being robbed uh your guess is as good as mine but but certainly um th- th- there's a number of different theories I, I, whether we'll get to the bottom of it i'm not entirely sure i think it's going to be a lot more complicated than it than it first looked the world's will carlos in rio thanks will thank you very much because you know you look at some of these other people who win a gold medal it's the highlight of their life um I mean, think about that. I saw that young kid from uh, Wade Newkirk from South Africa who got to run because his mom didn't get to run because of apartheid. Mm-hmm. Him winning that gold medal is going to be the greatest thing to happen to him in his life. Our lead story the whole day, of course, remembering the Maracana massacre four years ago. I think it's uh, one of the geez, it's it's hard to callously pick between which is the worst blight on our democracy. A absolutely horrendous set of events, but also four years since justice has been fully enjoyed uh, by the family and the community, particularly affected by the Marikana massacre. Now, I wonder what you make now, reflecting back on the Marikana massacre of that moment, which I think really brought our democracy to its knees by just demonstrating some continuities with the violent apartheid state that uh, we all would have thought and hoped we would not carry into our democracy. Zero double one double eight three oh seven oh two. Do give us a call. And in Cape Town on oh two one double four six oh five six seven. I'm also joined now by director of litigation at Socioeconomic Rights Institutes at SERI, Nomzamo Zondo. Nomzamo, thank you so much for coming onto the show today. It's a pleasure, Isabius. Good morning. I don't even know where to start because you know, when we think about what's happened, the Farlem Commission, Lonban's role, flouting their social responsibility, I was saying to my producers this morning that although I'd like to discuss with you questions around housing for the miners, etc., in a sense, I want to start with the big picture, Nomzama, and just get your reflections, not just as, um, you know, from a public uh, interest litigation point of view, but as a South African, what comes up for you uh, today as we look back? Look, Eusebius, um, the 16th of August 2012 is a moment of national shame for all South Africans. And it's sad that as we, we sit here and stand here four years later and nothing has been done about it. Mm. Um, no one has been criminally prosecuted. Uh, none, no, no, no reparations have been paid to the families. Uh, and in, in effect, no real, the government hasn't really accounted and even apologized firstly to those affected and then to the country as a whole for what happened on the 16th of August 2012. And what then is the state of litigation, both from a point of view of justice in terms of retribution for the massacre, and then also in terms of compensation? Just bring us up to speed with what is fact. So um, you say this at the end of last year, the state made an announcement to the media that they will be settling the claims. Um, this, this was something of, that came as a, as a relief to the families, and we, we were surprised because nothing had been said to us. Mm. But we eventually invited to a meeting that happened in January of this year. At that meeting, the state said to us, um, they do want to settle their claims. They accept uh, liability, and they accept that they are responsible for the, for the massacre. But that they, they, they would want to start a process uh, 
uh, where the claims can be adjudicated. So the first disappointment for us is that we're now talking about a process. Mm-hmm. We had hoped they would go there and would get a check or at least get figures. Them saying to us, look, we are willing to settle these claims at this much. So that didn't happen. They, and in the process, they said to us, look, we, we accept liability. We want to appoint uh, a retired judge who will then look at adjudicate those claims, then give us how much the state must pay. And we said to them, look, firstly, we, 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 we are, we're happy with the proposal. Of course, having gone past our disappointment, but what we'd want to know first, firstly, is that the families have asked for an apology from the minister of police. If you accept liability, will that will that be forthcoming? Mm. They said to us, we need to get instructions on that. That was in January this year, on the 27th. We now sit on the 6th of August. They still don't have instructions, and we've had numerous that have sent to them, and they don't have instructions. We then said, we understand you want to appoint a judge. But this is a matter now where we, we, are, we, are, we are equal parties. There's the state and then there's, there's, there's the victims. We'd want to have a hand in choosing what judge, what judge adjudicates the matter because we want, we want someone that we would be comfortable with. And they, and they said to us, we're, still, we're going to get instructions. Mm. Today, we still don't have a response to that. We then said to them, look, the families are, 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 are living are, are destitute. Some families are really, really struggling. We'd like to see you paying interim, making interim payments to them. Uh, if you accept liability, then you accept that there is some money that you'll have to pay. Tell us how much you're willing to pay in the meantime. Yeah. To date, we're still waiting for a response on that. So those settlement negotiations have not really gone anywhere. To the extent that as the, as the family's legal representatives, we accept that maybe that process is not, is not going to take us anywhere. That in effect, mm. we, might, we will have to finish this in court. What that, that, that then means is that we have, we've had to engage psychologists who must then prove um, the fact that the, fam- the families have, have suffered emotional shock. They must prove the fact that the young children are, are suffering from, from, from a lack of parental care, having lost their fathers, and must prove that they, these families are suffering from, a, from, from, from grief. Now, these are things that are known. I mean, we know that in, 20, in 2012, immediately after the massacre, where two family members dying alongside being buried mm-hmm. at the same time as, 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 as the deceased minors. We know some of the widows miscarried. Mm-hmm. As recently as, as early this year, where a 14-year-old boy hang himself because in his community he's being told your father was a multi-crazed minor who attacked the police sure. in his community he's being ridiculed and he, he because of that he felt that he couldn't live anymore mm. and this was a 14 year old so it, it, the, 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 the amount of stress and the trauma that, the, that those events have brought to the families is, 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 is really unimaginable mm. now we sit here and we must sit and we must now get psychologists and also pay money so while no money is going to the families we are sending money to other people so we already, we've already spoken about how much money has been spent mm. on the Marikana Commercial Inquiry. But even as we go on, no money is being given to the families. But again, money is being spent on, mm. on, on, on lawyers. Money is being spent on, on other experts. Now, Namzamo, and I know this is speculative, but honestly, I mean, what, what is your take on why the government would be so tardy? One doesn't need forensic psychology reports to understand the trauma. I mean, this was national trauma for those of us who didn't even have proximity to the event, let alone if you are actually a family member directly um, implicated by the violence that happened that day with the slaughtering of so many men. Uh, what what is behind it? Is it is it what is it a in the best case scenario a, a bona fide concern about false claims, or is it in the worst case scenario just just a shambles when it comes to political responsibility and the shame of owning up? I think it's definitely the shame of, of they don't want to own up to the massacre. I mean, that's why when when when, when it, last year they said they will settle the claims, we thought that that was, that was the best thing to do. In effect, me personally, I don't I, I don't even understand why 
we were forced to go to a, a commission of inquiry when that could have been just up front. They could have said, we want a commission of inquiry, but even before we go there, we want to make, we want, we want to do right by these people. As we sit here, Eusebius, the minors who are alleged to be involved in, in the killing of other people at the Gobi have been, have been going through prostitution for years. But even today, not even a single policeman has been charged. Even those policemen who on their own versions are guilty. So policemen have said, I shot someone 10 times in self-defense. If I shoot someone at my gate, because I think they're going to they come and trying to, to, to break into my house, I would be charged. So on what basis has there been no criminal prosecution, mm. apart from a, from, a, from, from a refusal from the state to take responsibility? Secondly, for, for, for the state... Not, not wanting to acknowledge the humanity of these families mm. and the humanity of the men they killed on that mountain. So as, as for the state, we are, we are still back on the 16th of August 2012 when Ria congratulated, 17th, when she congratulated the policing, this is the best of possible policing. Because if it wasn't the best of, of, of responsible policing, the state would have come out and said, we are ashamed mm. of what has happened and, in, and we are going to remedy that. We'll do that everything possible to make sure that you don't you don't get to suffer alone. Mm. Now, Zama, I want to talk a little bit about Lonman as well. But before I do that, let's just tie up the conversation about the state. Where to from here then to force the state's hand from a social justice point of view? You see, the, the, the unfortunate thing, you say, is that we are stuck within the confines of the law. The law says, as I've said, the families must now go through psychologists. And the, the law might even demand that the families must go to court and give evidence hmm. on their suffering. While at the same time, the, the policeman who shot will be protected by their concession of liability. So there'll be no one who's saying, why did you shoot? Why did you decide to shoot 20 times? What were you scared of? But then poor Mrs. Charles will have to stand there and say, this is my son. He was my pride and joy. Hmm. He's the person who made sure that I had food on the table. And then have, a, have, have someone from the state interrogate her. Hmm. And unfortunately, that's, that's what the law requires. So we're now stuck in, in, in then complying with the law's process, which means we must, we, must, we must go through this process of getting psychologists to speak to 320 claimants and write reports for 320 claimants. Mm. It was hard enough for us. It took us, I think, almost a month to, uh, to arrange for those consultations. Mm. Let alone how, how much time will it take us to review all the reports that will come from that process. But that's, that's what the law says. So the law, in this case, is not delivering justice. And we would have hoped that the South African government as, as, as the father of the families, as the father of the deceased minors, we have said, as we see that this mm. is wrong. Okay, and let's... Has gone wrong here, mm. We don't need to prove it anymore. They are feral rats. Feral rats. The mobs were feral. Feral rats. I saw, a, you know, an image of a boy, you know, a black boy making a white boy strip in the street. To me, those things are reprehensible. And those people should have more than the book thrown at them. His prophecy was absolutely right. I'm ashamed to be a black guy seeing a lot of young other black, black people causing this trouble and bringing our names down. Five years ago this month, a young black man was shot dead by police. Protests erupted in the city. Sounds like what's happened recently in many American cities, but we're talking here about London, England, and those protests escalated into riots. The world's Leo Hornack lives in London now, as he did back in 2011. 
So just remind us, Leo, why did these riots start and how much of an effect did they have? They were huge, Jeb. I mean, not just for, for London, but for Britain and maybe Europe as a whole. I think the effect that these riots had on my city, I think, changed it for a whole generation. The, the reason they started is extremely controversial and complicated, but essentially uh, a young black man, Mark Duggan, was shot dead by police. There were local community protests against the police as a result of that. And then that turned into rioting, and that turned into looting, which quickly spread across the city in multiple locations. And over the course of a week, those riots then spread across the whole country. I mean, I remember the experience as just a Londoner at that time. I remember my mother calling me and saying that my sister was really worried because she was looking out of her window and seeing men with baseball bats walking along the street, smashing every car window. Or I remember standing at a bus stop, for example, and hearing two people next to me discuss where you could get the best free stuff from looted shops in my neighbourhood. So it was something that was a huge news event. And then also, at the same time, it was weirdly local. It was just what people were talking about just at the bus stop. And you've been to meet one family in London who were particularly affected, the Kermis. Who are they? Right. Well, Amrit and Ravi Kermi, they run a small convenience store in a suburb of London called Ealing. And they'd always had it as their ambition to run their own store. And they'd been actually managing to do that for some years, a small independent store. Maybe it's like the British equivalent of a bodega. But then the riots happened. Now, Amrit, she took me out across the street to show me exactly where things began to happen on that day. Here's what she told me, Jeb. Oh, it was a horror. We came back and stood exactly over there. This was full of people with the masks on and everything, and our shop was getting looted, the windows were broken, and uh, we, we couldn't do anything. My husband wanted to go in, and he wanted to, like, stop them, and I was holding him back. I was just crying. I was on the phone. I said to Ravi, it's, we cannot stop. It's not in our hands. We, just, we had to just stand over there and watch our shop being destroyed, our livelihood being destroyed. And I remember one of the girls, she said to me, she was coming out with sweet, lots of things, and she said to me, you can go in, there's plenty inside. And I couldn't tell her, I was so scared that this is my store you're doing to. I just had to stand there and uh, watch Imagine watching your own store looted. How are they doing now? What happened? Well, she, she, as you can almost hear from that clip, she became quite emotional. I did as well when she was just describing it. How they're doing now? Well, it's been a very, very hard five years. I mean, things like the insurance didn't pay out. And they've got two kids, two teenage girls at that time. It's been really, really hard. And here's what Amrit told me about how they've had to cope since then. You know, it's taught us a lot it's shown us anything can change you know any time so you sh- and it's brought us together as a as a family because we had to go through we had to suffer together four of us the girls had to stop a lot of things because there was no money they were doing their music lessons they were doing you know they were doing but we couldn't, couldn't do it because we just had to provide bread and butter that was our main priority so it, it was difficult leo could this happen again in london Well, Amrit and Ravi, they both say, yeah, they think it could. The factors that caused the rioting, so far as we can tell what they were, are are still there. You know, the sense of injustice that led to the protests, 
the sense of there being a 1% and a 99%. These are all familiar things for U.S. cities. So the preconditions that were there, they're still there, and who knows? I think there's, there's every chance in a way that we could one day wake up to the same kind of thing. Well, let's hope not. The world's Leo Horneck in London. Thank you very much. Listen, just touching on some real issues right here tonight. That's, That's, right. All. That's all. That's all. I want good. y'all to observe the excellence here. BX providing the Sonics, my man, Minnesota. I'm letting the beat ride out because it's a part that I like when it come up. You know what I'm saying? I take this time to say what's up to my family. <laughs> you hear that? You know what I'm saying? For sure. Just observe the excellence of that. That's many. Hey, back. Fall back. Uh-uh. With the guitars. It's hip-hop music. It's good enough to speak for itself. And you got to do right by it. Minnesota. Ain't no black people in Minnesota. The week I went to the Twin Cities, protesters closed highways twice, jamming traffic for hours. That's a big deal in Minneapolis, as it would be in any city, and it seemed to split white liberals. On Twitter and in the comment sections of news stories, people who self-identified as white wrote that they were sympathetic to the Black Lives Matter cause, but they didn't understand how closing highways is productive. Wilson Ibrahim, the 27-year-old Somali-American and Black Lives Matter member in the first part of this episode, had this response when I asked her about it. Don't read the comments. Yeah, That's person <laughs> says don't read the comments. But the fact that you're talking about it, the fact that you're bothered, the fact that you're aware of what Black Lives Matter is, that's why we're blocking the roads. The fact that our lives are daily destructed, disturbed, and you can go on and never be affected by that. That's why we make you uncomfortable, because we, we've we been uncomfortable like our whole lives. And the fact that you're feeling this now makes it all worth it, because there's no debating it now. And that's where I got the idea for this part of the episode. It's about feelings and the unexpected power they can have, like the feeling of fearing law enforcement. People really, really run away from police. Police was like the most scariest thing you could you could think about and the feelings that you struggle to put into words when we heard them say a concept we would just say the thing you're talking about is impunity the thing you're talking about is propaganda the thing you're talking about is racism but first feeling safe there's a defining moment that's happening here and if you're playing pokemon go you're missing it you know (laughs) i'm rupa shinoi and this is otherhood Summer in Minnesota began with bitter disappointment for people who want police reform. In June, prosecutors announced they wouldn't press charges against the officers who killed Jamar Clark, the young black man witnesses said was shot while his hands were cuffed behind his back. Things just got worse in July. An officer in the suburbs pulled Philando Castile over for a broken taillight and fatally shot him. Minnesota's governor, the liberal Democrat Mark Dayton, expressed shock that something like that could happen in Minnesota, a state known for its progressiveness. I'm heartbroken for Minnesota because would this have happened if those passengers, the driver and the passengers were white? I don't think it would have. So I'm forced to confront, and I think all of us in Minnesota are forced to confront 
this this kind of uh, racism exists, and that it's incumbent upon all of us to vow that we're going to do whatever we can to see that it doesn't continue to happen. Some police slammed Dayton for those comments. Protesters wanted to make sure he lived up to the sentiment. They set up a camp outside his house. Demonstrations throughout the Twin Cities grew bigger and bolder. Charmaine Chua was at one four days after Philando Castile died. I just answered a call that had been put out on Facebook and wasn't there with any particular group, but showed up with just some friends. She and other protesters stormed a highway ramp, evaded officers, and rushed onto I-94, the crucial road that connects the two downtowns of the Twin Cities. Organizers in a truck were shouting directions. The Black Lives Matter organizers who were on the truck and making the announcements made a call for white allies to come up to the front. And I believe the call went something like this. White allies, we're asking that you link arms and take the front lines of this blockade. You will most certainly be arrested, but we are asking that you risk yourselves and put your bodies on the line for us. And black and brown folks, we recognize that you are much more at risk from police brutality. And so they basically made a call for black and brown folks to remain in the center of the circle and that they could choose not to be arrested um, as long as they didn't want to. At that point, Charmaine had to think a bit about where she was supposed to go. She's Chinese from Singapore and has been living in the Twin Cities for seven years, working on a poli-sci PhD at the University of Minnesota. She knows there's Asian privilege, and Asians don't have to deal with a lot of the stuff black people experience. There was certainly this sort of dilemma for me because I wanted to risk myself and I wanted to stand with, you know, the white allies on the front lines But I also decided at the end of the day that in order for me to continue being able to be part of social movements in the U.S., I had to sort of think long term and and stay back. Part of the difficulty for me is that if I get arrested in the U.S., I would risk facing either deportation, but if not, um, at least some complications with getting hired as a non-U.S. citizen. So she watched as white supporters formed a human chain to separate her and other protesters from hundreds of cars. What happened, I think, was that there were far more white allies who were willing to risk arrest than they had probably expected. Up to three to four lines deep of white allies lined up, linked arm to arm, side by side, along the highway in the front line. And black and brown protesters end up sort of being cocooned in the middle And so it was really quite this beautiful moment because, you know, I think one of the complicated conversations with Black Lives Matter has been around sort of what does it mean to be a white person or a non-black person involved in the protest. And in this particular instance, I, I thought it was really wonderful how it was in response to a call made by black organizers and black leaders that white people took the front lines. They made sure that they waited until that call was asked of them. Beyond the circle of white supporters that surrounded them, Charmaine saw the police in riot gear advance. At the very moment that the police sort of came, you know, within 10 to 15 feet of the protesters, someone from across, like over the highway on the bridge from which many people were watching threw a, threw a firework down on, on the police, which went up in this sort of sudden burst of flame and you know, watching from a slight distance, I, I actually couldn't tell what the firework was. It didn't occur to me that it had come from a spectator, and I assumed that it was the police using some sort of crowd dispersal device. So you could see the white allies 
get sort of really afraid for a moment there as the firework went up because it was really scary. I mean, you could see the sort of sparks come out and sort of almost rain down on the crowd. Some people, you know, in fear, naturally sort of recoiled. At that moment, one of the Black Lives Matter organizers said, hold together, you know, hold together, don't let go, don't run. White allies reformed their lines, stood firm, and police retreated for about an hour while traffic was stopped on the highway. So I think the allies actually held the highway for us for a much longer time than we had anticipated. When police finally did advance, the protest devolved into what one prosecutor later called a riot. Instigators, many of whom were never identified, were blamed for throwing bottles and bricks. Police arrested more than 100 people, many of them white. I asked Charmaine, who's been participating in protests for years, if she'd ever seen organizers talk so intentionally about race, how it works, and how they were using it in the middle of a protest. You know, actually, no. I was thinking about this the other day, and I've, you know, I've been involved in protests in New York, Minneapolis, St. Paul, and Los Angeles, but I had never before, I think, heard organizers sort of so explicitly talk about positionality in the thick of a, a moment of protest, and I thought it was a real testament to how well organized the Black Lives Matter coalition here really was. And that approach of acknowledging that some people face harsher consequences than others, that made Charmaine feel way more safe. I felt like I couldn't risk arrest and so was in the middle of the protest and felt really safe in a way and really grateful that I was able to both participate in the protest and show my solidarity, but that, you know, the protest structure could recognize that I was at risk in a different way. I mean, I think that I would have left the highway much earlier if there hadn't been that call that was made and if if there hadn't been a clear sort of message from the organizers about who risked protest and who didn't. Because sometimes, you know, in the, in the sort of height of protest, it can be pretty chaotic and you don't always know what the level of risk you're putting yourself in really is. But it helps that they, they announced that and made it clear sort of where you could stand, where you were safe and where you weren't. For generalities, I generally say that if you want the ultimate expression of white supremacy and the white supremacist mentality, and you want to put it in the form of one person that I would name, and that's something I very seldom do, it would be Jeffrey Dahmer. The city of Milwaukee, to me, just lost. They care nothing about the black community as a whole. I wanted to reach out to talk to somebody who I have been talking about uh, talking to and about issues like this for more than 20 years to get his take. And joining me on the line is Michael Holt, who is uh, one of the editors of the Milwaukee Community Journal and a longtime panelist of my television show, Sunday Inside. Good morning, Michael. How are you? Good morning, Charlie. Uh, it's a very interesting time we're living in right now. Well, in Milwaukee, well, I, I, I describe what happened over the weekend as shocking but not surprising. Do you agree or disagree with that? Oh, absolutely. I, you know, I anticipated, sadly, I anticipated this was going to happen uh, a year ago. Uh, I'm only surprised that it caught us off guard because we should have been anticipated. Okay, wh wh tell me why you were anticipating it, what you saw, what you felt, why you thought this was going to happen. Well, you know, there's this, this simmering frustration. There's this, uh, this sense of hopelessness 
particularly among young folks who are not as tolerant as the folks my age who want to seek uh, solutions to problems. You know, uh, Milwaukee has the highest black male unemployment rate in, in the Western Hemisphere. You know, more than half of all black men between 18 and 50 are unemployed. You know, we do have this breakdown of the family, dysfunctional families. You know, uh, everything has been simmering. And in the last few years that we've seen uh, this supposed uptick in the question of police shootings, and when you couple that with all the uh, racial profiling that takes place, you know, I mean, this was almost inevitable. Okay. Let me go back to this point because you have been making this point about uh, the, the unemployment rate for several years. On my show, you, you, you've gone on record, and whatever the numbers are, I, th- I think they're, they're ballpark true. Where has been – where's the sense of urgency? Where's the leadership? You know, I see Khalif Rainey, and I see Russell Stamper Jr., and I know you know them very well. I see them come out, and they are indignant about the unfairness, the impression, you know, the, the oppression everything. But you know what? When somebody is trying to fix Milwaukee public schools or when they are trying to get some leadership in this community to deal with this, I don't see these guys. I don't hear these guys. Where is – if this problem is – and I'm, I'm take out the – this problem is obviously acute – where has the outrage been? Where has the leadership been on these problems? Well, you know, that's one of the fallacies that, that is uh, promoted by the journal media. Uh, there are many individuals working on this, but it does not get the publicity. I mean, those who read the community journal will see some of those efforts, you know, but there's this constant, continuous efforts by a lot of different groups. You know, Pastors United is out here. There, there's an older mentor group out here. You know, I know Russell Stamper has been involved in both education and economic development issues. You know, uh, Cliff Rainey is new to, you know, local politics. But, you know, there has, you know, the fact that an organization, which we don't necessarily have in Milwaukee, called Black Lives Matter, is criticizing questions is endemic of the problem because that organization exists because from our perspective, black lives don't matter to anybody but us. Okay, so all right. No, I get it. But, right, but but Friday night we had five black lives lost. Absolutely. Five, Absolutely. five, five. No protests, no demonstrations. No, oh, there was. There was. Okay. And here's my point. You know, because uh, you know TMJ is not on the scene, or you know the Journal Sentinel is not on the scene, doesn't mean it doesn't happen. You know, I think when we look at this, this situation, what happened over the weekend, and I went through the area, and I was a little surprised that across the street from the gas station, which had been targeted for protests several weeks before, you know, they were selling water and, and barbecue and hamburgers and hot dogs. So, I mean, this has become some kind of public spectacle of some sort. But let's not paint with a broad brush. There are three separate and distinct groups here, and everybody's looking at one group. There were the ruffians who broke into that beauty supply place and stole things. Mm-hmm. The ones who set fire to the gas station. That is one separate and distinct group. It's a smaller three. Okay. Then there are the young folks that my grandson is involved with who are outraged, who would protest, who are members of or, or participate in the coalition for justice marches. And then there's the third group of homeowners, Working families, non-working families, ministers, community leaders, 
And was there any publicity that 200 of them marched yesterday and appealed for peace, including the sister of the guy who was shot? Was there any publicity? Yeah, that? well, there, 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 there was. And, in fact, I do think that was one of the best things that happened over the weekend was, you know, the people in the neighborhood who came and cleaned up. And, you know, it, the, the incidents like this do bring out the worst, but they also bring out the best. So, yeah, there were. Now, the, the first group you described as, what was the word you used, ruffians? Ruffians. Ruffians. They're, ruffians. They're the ones who are doing the shooting. They're the ones who did not burn, you know, that duty supply place out of frustration or to make any kind of political point. They were going in there to steal something. You know, that is a totally separate group that, that, you know, should be charged. And they should be ostracized, and they have been ostracized by other people who, who want some civil solutions to the problem. Okay, now, you know? th- this is important because you're, you're making the distinction that I wasn't hearing in some of those press conferences, making the real distinction that here are legitimate grievances and legitimate problems that we need to talk about, that we've been talking about, you know, whether it's education or jobs or, or the economy, et-, et cetera, versus the fact that you have these, this, this, this criminal subculture thugs were the ones shooting at the cops and burning down the, the stores. These are not social justice warriors. They're not doing this in order to fight oppression. They're doing this because they have an excuse to act out. Would you disagree with me on that? No, I totally agree. In fact, all we need to do is look at who was shot. It, it wasn't the police. It wasn't a store owner. It wasn't some, you know, ambiguous oppressor. It was another black person shot by these same thugs mm-hmm. and terrorists. My problem with the with the bold, broad statements of the head of the police union is he's actually lumping us all into one category. You know, I I stated on air repeatedly, we are being terrorized by these thugs uh, and these individuals who, who prey on us. They are the purveyors who that we have to fight. And there are groups within the black community who have even gone so far as discussing armed response to these folks. You know, what's happening, and I I was watching this on social media, and there's so much that's out there that's pretty awful, that people, that this was dividing up between, this was white versus black, you know, that this was, you know, white people versus black people, black people versus white people. And what you're saying, though, is that you're you're talking about African Americans versus African Americans in those neighborhoods, and and that's really the front line in in neighborhoods like Sherman Park. Absolutely, and you know I used to live a few blocks away from there, you know, on 49th and Locust. Matter of fact, you know when I first met my wife, her next door neighbor was Tom Barrett, you know, and then we lived there for like ten ten years, you know. It's now a rental property, and, and when we went back there after a tenant moved out started cleaning up and repairing some of the damage. You know, there are bullet holes in the garage door. You know, we put up a new uh, a door, and they broke in, and then they shot up the house. You know, I was a member of that black club, and when we go to meetings to try to chase away a drug dealer, I was the only man there. Hmm. And I think that's very symbolic okay. of, of the problems that's taking place. Okay, My well, why, why would you be the street. only man there? Well, half of the block was rental property. So some of those folks didn't care. Some of the men, I assume, you know, were working when we identified a time to visit this drug dealer. But some, I guess, were just scared because this retaliation, which a lot of folks on the outside don't understand. You know, the, the guy who, who was shot by the police 
was actually charged yeah. with intimidating the witness to his crime. That's an ongoing uh, uh, scenario. These people, there's been other publicized events. You know, my sister lives a few blocks away in a beautiful area right off Sherman, Grant Boulevard. She called the police, and then they turned around and terrorized her until the point where she moved out. Now, hold, hold on, hold on. Who, 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 ter- who terrorized her? It was not the police who terrorized her. It was the, it was the, uh, the ruffians? No, it, was, it was the perpetrators. Perpetrator. Okay, so, so the way you're describing it, though, that, that in order for the, the, the community that actually cares about the neighborhood and, and the community and raising their families, the police have to be your ally. Because where would you be? Oh, where would you be without the cops? to call under these circumstances. So why is it the only time that we hear these outbursts, and maybe it's because of the media coverage, but these outbursts is when is when there's an opportunity to demonize the cops as opposed to recognizing that the cops are often your your ally and maybe your most important ally. I want to be a cop. Context of white supremacy. Gus T. Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Saturday, August 20th, 2016. So I have been told compensatory call in. If folks have commentary they would like to share, feel free to chime in. The number to dial is 641-715-3640. The code is 564-943-POUND. Press star 6 if you would like to participate. The number again, 641-715-3640. The code is 564-943-POUND. Press star 6 if you would like to participate. Couple quick things uh, before we get to uh, folks on the phone line uh, who have commentary. Uh, I know we have for years had a good number of listeners in the Louisiana area. Uh, I certainly thoughts, prayers, uh, any folks down there uh, who are dealing with all of the damage from the flooding. Uh, as much time as we spent. Uh, talking about Hurricane Katrina and the 10-year anniversary uh, this time last summer uh, to be seeing all of the historic uh, devastation that's happening uh, in Louisiana right now. Uh, any listeners in that area, I hope you, your family, friends, people that you <clears throat> care about are safe, uh, are not in harm's way, or are not having any uh, damage to your residence or property or, or anything like that. Certainly, uh, thoughts and prayers uh, with folks in the Louisiana area. Uh, thankfully, uh, it might have just been that it was not reported because that certainly happened with Hurricane Katrina, but at least thus far, I have not uh, seen any reports uh, of black people directly uh, being terrorized uh, during this event uh, on the level of what happened with Hurricane Katrina, but uh, certainly feel free to update me if I just have missed that information, but that is uh, extremely important what's happening right now in the state of Louisiana. Uh, next up, just a few quick comments. I uh, wanted to make sure that we uh, got in before we get to the callers. Second thing, uh, the situation with the school where it was a black female student, she was called a nigger. She told her brothers they went to uh, find the little racist who had been terrorizing verbally uh, their sister, and they, according to the report, they admitted 
that they assaulted uh, this little racist, uh, and then they <clears throat> were reprimanded uh, and suspended from school for whatever the period of time they didn't specify. And then when these black children's parents went to the school to try to remedy the problem, uh, the parents uh, were removed from the school grounds. Uh, the police were called uh, the father, black father, uh, he was charged. I thought that was significant for many reasons. We've talked about, you know, this is what you can expect uh, in the system of white supremacy from uh, the racist school system. However, I think this is another illustration. I talked about this, I think, two weeks ago. They had the spitting incident in Chicago, and people were saying, you know, black people are cowards. That's why this sort of thing keeps happening. Black people don't fight back. Standard, I mean, that's almost a root response uh, from many whites and many non-whites. That was even in Django Unchained. And I said that is completely false. There are so many reports of black people resorting to counterviolence in response to racism, white supremacy. This is often exactly what you can expect to happen. Uh, again, I'm not telling anyone to not resort to counterviolence if you deem that that is the approach that needs to be taken. If you think, hey, this is what needs to happen. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that the system of white supremacy seems to have uh, a pretty solid track record for how they respond uh, when a victim of racism resorts to counter violence. It seems like they have been able to suppress that, uh, to deal with that pretty effectively uh, over the years worldwide. I could be in there, but I did think that that was uh, significant. Also, number three, we'll be here tomorrow. Global Sunday talk on racism, uh, encouraging our folks, international listeners, to dial in, uh, share their thoughts. It'll be 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific. Uh, I certainly was reminded of that hearing uh, the report. Uh, this is also the four-year anniversary, five-year, excuse me, five-year anniversary of the quote-unquote London riots. Uh, I would say Hurricane Katrina, the coverage that we did last year, the 10-year anniversary, uh, signature work here at the context of white supremacy with the volume uh, different programs that we did covering that and different guests and what have you. I think we did work that I'm uh, proud of what we were able to do. I think we got out a lot of pertinent information. I think the London riots would also qualify as signature work here at the context of white supremacy. We had a lot of black people uh, in the UK, in London specifically, on the program all throughout. And again, a testament to the immaculate timing of the cows we had a guest uh, from the UK. We had uh, Almost British. The author's husband was on the program. That broadcast was scheduled like a month in advance, way before Mark Duggan was shot and killed and the riots kicked off and everything. Uh, we had him on the program right in the middle. Uh, I think within 12 hours of everything started, he was on the program. So we were able to get live update from someone who was in ground zero immediately and then pretty much for the rest of the month of august 2011 we had tons of people uh, on the program repeatedly i'm really looking forward to uh, talking to some of our folks in the uk to get some of their thoughts on what has been done for the five-year anniversary of of all of that i do think it's significant because we did do so much work on that they left out in terms of what started uh, all of that in the U.K., the killing of Mark Duggan, who does have a white parent, uh, even though he is certainly classified as non-white. They said he's a black male with a white mom. Uh, that Saturday, Mark Duggan was killed on that Thursday, first Thursday in August 2011. Two days later that Saturday, the family, uh, just black people that were concerned, they went to the Metropolitan Police Station to get information about what happened, why Mark Duggan was shot and killed, just, you know, inform us, let us know what's going on. They did not get any answers, and while they were out front 
uh, out in front of the police department, a 16-year-old black female was shoved. That was a key incident uh, that sparked a lot of what took place. Uh, in all of that, I think that gets conveniently left out, but I think a lot of the, uh, or it's not, I think, I know many of the black guests that we had on the program uh, five years ago, they consistently emphasized that that was a really important event uh, that sparked a lot of what took place uh, back in 2011. Uh Last thing I will make sure I get in, at least at this point, I'll share a few other things as we uh, move forward. I'd said not that long ago, uh, I think within the last month or two, uh, I'm totally done uh, with name calling on uh, this program, name calling of other black people. Uh, I think that's at least one point that I think we've been pretty consistent about. I think anyone who's listened to the cows over uh, any length of time, uh, that's something that I have consistently spoken about uh, and made an effort to discourage, not allow uh, on this platform, name calling other black people. Uh, I've stated consistently uh, it is a disgrace of the highest order uh, for people to talk and brother this and sister that. And I love black people. And then within the next five seconds, turn around and coon this and Sambo that. I mean, that is a total disgrace and gets to the heart of why I almost want to vomit when someone's, oh, my black brother, Gus, my brother, get out of here with all of that. I'm restating this because I'd said before I'm done. I have no patience for name calling on the program. Uh, It happened twice. Since then, I have muted some people, uh, but one person called and it was a first time call. And I was like, wow, that's pretty that's pretty tough uh, to meet someone as a first-time caller. Uh, and then it happened again this week uh, where it was a request made. Uh, the person called in from Wisconsin to share information. They are in Wisconsin. They had all the disturbances that took place this past week. And the name calling popped up there, too. And I was like, wow, I'm at a dilemma here. Do I mute someone when people have asked to hear what they have to say about something that is important taking place? And they are in a better position to know about this just based on their geographic proximity. I am totally at the point, I don't care what you're talking about. If you have to name call another black person, I have zero interest in hearing anything you have to say about anything. So I'm just making this, and I'm not interested in hearing any feedback uh, on my view on this. If you don't agree, it's no problem. You do not have to listen to the context of white supremacy, and you certainly don't have to call in. In fact, I will help you find another program where you can feel free to name call any and every single black person you would like it. You can put Gus T. Renegade at the top of the list when you call into your other radio program. Gus is the biggest coon, Sambo, Uncle Tom in the known universe. No problem. I help you find a broadcast. But if it's going to be your two-year-old child that calls in to talk about her thoughts on racism, and that has to include name-calling another black person, she's going to be muted. If you're your 112-year-old grandfather, and he's calling in to talk about his centuries worth of racism and that has to include name calling another black person he's going to be muted it is a total disgrace and i'm not promoting that at all on this broadcast we're not going to name call other black people that does not help solve any problems related to racism white supremacy and on a final connected note i find it astounding even i can pose it as a question How is it that everyone knows about Sheriff Clark in Wisconsin? I would be willing to wager a substantial amount of funds that a good chunk of listeners probably could not name five sheriffs in your specific state. 
county, parish, whatever the case may be, I'm pretty sure a good chunk of listeners couldn't name three, four, five sheriffs in your area, much less Sheriff Clark all the way in Wisconsin. He's thousands of miles away from me. I'm sure a whole lot of people, in fact, most of the people who listen to this broadcast are not in his jurisdiction at all. So Sheriff Clark is not causing you any direct problems. That just cannot be true. People who don't know, Sheriff Clark is a black male. Uh, He's on Fox News on a pretty regular basis, which is no coincidence. Uh, And he was certainly, he's been interviewed and and given a few talks since everything that went down in Milwaukee uh, over the past week. I am of the opinion, I have concluded, if Sheriff Clark died today, let's say he slipped on a bar of soap in the bathroom, that would not improve the situation of black people at all. We've talked about this on the program before. It might make you feel a little bit better. I have no idea what could be motivating have some suspicions. What could be motivating uh, us spending so much time focusing on individuals like the victim of white supremacy, Sheriff Clark? I would just submit he is not the person that is causing white supremacy and name calling him, even if we killed him. That would not improve our situation at all. Finally, I would submit I think racists have done a very good job of conditioning us to focus on other victims like Sheriff Clark. It even reminded me of the film Training Day with Denzel Washington where he got his Academy Award. There is a very significant scene that was not in the film. If you get the DVD, it's one of the deleted scenes where he's in the car, he's having a conversation with his co-star, Ethan Hawke, who's in The Purge, uh, and he's talking about his first you know, time on the job when he's training, when he was a rookie. And he says that they see a black male beating a dog, and he's Like, oh, my gosh, why don't we go arrest him? What are we doing? He's beating this dog with a water hose. And his partner, supervisor, tells him what they're doing is training the dog to hate niggers. That's exactly what Denzel Washington says in the movie. Again, this is in the deleted scenes. In my view, racists, they can do a very, it's not they can, they do an exemplary job 24-7 training us to dislike, despise other black people, that anti-blackness critical component to why the system of racism, white supremacy is here, why Mr. Fuller, Dr. Francis Cress Welsing, many others, why one of the primary things that they encourage on a regular basis, black self-respect, not name-calling other black people. That is one of the primary principles that I try to advocate here on the program. So just for added emphasis, again, do not ever call into this program if you feel that whatever you have to say has to include name calling another black person and again I have zero interest in hearing feedback or disagreement or what have you if Gus is talking crazy again find another program and feel free to make Gus the first person that you name call with that we will get to the folks who dialed in again for this program specifically really exclusively if we could not use metaphors that would be helpful i make that error myself i do make an effort to correct acknowledge if i include a metaphor no it can be difficult but if we could make that effort to be mindful about what we are saying that is one of the more important elements of countering racism white supremacy to be careful about the words that we use it's been my experience my conclusion Uh, that racists routinely use metaphors to confuse what racism, white supremacy is, how it works, so that non-white people do not get an accurate 
understanding of the problem. I think often victims of racism, we use metaphors, analogies, comparisons, uh, just we're still learning uh, sometimes just in our <clears throat> struggles to try to articulate our views on racism, white supremacy. We end up using metaphors that just they're not accurate. They're not comparing two things that are equivalent at all. And again, that just promotes further confusion. If we could be direct, precise, exact about what it is that we're saying, that would be super appreciated. With that, we'll get to the phone lines. The number again, 641-715-3640. And the code is 564-943-POUND. Press star 6 if you would like to participate. Folks who dialed in, oh, and if you can watch the background noise as well, that is always appreciated. Please use your mute button if you know you're in a noisy environment and people are talking or whatever the case is. That also is a big help. Thank you kindly. Uh, first set of folks who dialed in, line should be open. Uh, feel free if you have commentary you would like to share. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Good evening, Gus. Good evening to all the callers. Um, had a few observations um, to make. And um, first I wanted to say, you know, I, I personally like um, Sheriff Clark. <laughs> I love him. I love his comments that I find it amusing. And um, I, I understand what they're, they're using him. Um, you know, it's racial showcasing, man. You should be expecting this from the system. Oh, there, there you go. Even more. Um, uh, one person uh, made a comment, said, you know, he's the he's the type of person that will wear his uniform on his day off. I, I can see it. You know, I mean, he's dedicated to the system. And um, he has, um, I guarantee you, he'll have a moment where he'll wish that he wasn't in the near future um, because it, it never failed. Um, I just want to say, man, I don't think that I would um, go into a firehouse and ask for ice. I just would expect most of the firefighters would be white, and um, I wouldn't expect a good outcome to come from that. Also, I wouldn't go to school um, trying to fight someone because they call one of my kids a nigger, nor would I condone them going to beat up the white person calling them a nigger. I just think um, both of those situations, they handled them um, in a way that was very uncodified. Um, Mr. Nate Parker. I had no idea that the white female who accused him of raping her um, committed suicide, absolutely. And um, I, I said it before when I first um, looked this guy up and saw this rape case that, you know, it will come back to haunt him. Um, the OJ effect, uh, I think it will be coming to Nate Parker. I'm sorry if that was a metaphor, Gus. Um, gymnastics, as I said, um, in all sports, Pedophilia is a huge part of white culture. Um, these kids get shifted off to these white families who are white person trying to teach them these um, events and who knows what's going on. And children, if, if most rape cases to grown women don't get reported by the person who was raped, the victim, I could imagine most children is probably even a lower percentage. So, um, be very careful when you send your kids off to these white families, um, even the camps and things like that as well. Um, I don't think that it's proper to use athletic accomplishments to determine racial progress. 
I think that's something white people want to do. They um, promote Michael Jordan and LeBron and um, Tiger and all the rest of the black athletes um, very well. And that's a part of the system. Um, they're going to showcase certain blacks doing well, doing things that are good, that's standing up and pledge allegiance to the flag and all of that. And it's not making any progress for the rest of us. It's just entertainment. Uh, as for Lockheed, um, I've been cracking up all week with this story. Um, you know, I don't know, Gus. I, I think I'm a little older than you. I just turned 39 last week. But when I was in high school, I believe I was in high school, probably 14, 15, there was a little white boy. He was about 16, and he was in Singapore. And um, Singapore, um, it's, in, it's in Asia. It's a beautiful country. Um, their big cities look like the United States big cities, um, except for they're immaculately clean. Um, their their subway looks like you could eat off the platform. I mean, it's just really clean uh, from the pictures I've seen. And this white boy goes over there and spray paints something on a wall, and they catch him. And he had to be caned. Do you remember that, Gus? They caned him. I think Clinton was the president. They wanted him to have this kid extradited. He tried, but nope, he got caned. Um, and they use this big wooden stick to to hit you. They pull your pants down, and I think he got to had to get ten lashes. Um, do you remember that, Gus? Yes, sir. Oh yeah. So as for Lockheed, <laughs> hey man, you're in another country. I think they need to extradite them. Uh, whatever the rules are for lying to the police, there they should be enforced. That's my opinion. And um, lastly, uh, you talked about the anniversary of the riots in London. This weekend was also the anniversary of the riots in Crown Heights, Brooklyn, um, between um, blacks and whites um, who call themselves Jews. And um, I just thought that was important to note as well. It's been um, a lot of stories talking to the families and victims and things all weekend on New York One, the local news channel here in New York City. I mute my mind. Thank you, Gus. Have you heard? Uh, go ahead, sir. Uh, greetings to Gus, uh, callers and the listeners. Uh, this is Rob chiming in from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And uh got an observation about the interview that played on the last clip. Um, <clears throat> first, I'll start with a question for the person being interviewed. He said that he used to live on 49th and Locust. That's a predominantly black area. Uh, so my question would be, uh, where does he live now? Um, he also referred to uh, young black people in this city as thugs, um, drug dealers. And he made a statement that said renters uh, don't care about where they live. And... Um, the person that was interviewing him, what stood out to me is he said that um, people who, quote, unquote, care about the community have to be allies with the police. And um, the end, the whole interview was disgusting. Let me just say that. Um, in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, um, you know, I've been feeling the pressure from this city for a while and um you know <laughs> it's um 
Wow. I'll just say this. Um, the police are not here where I live. You know, I can't speak for nowhere else. I'm just speaking where I am. Um, they are not here to protect and serve. And I'll mute my line. Thanks for taking the call. Hello? Yes, sir. Okay. Uh, good evening. Uh, yeah, I agree with you all about that interview with the gentleman who was talking about crime and the and me sound like a white reporter saying how enough things to work you need to be allies with the police maybe maybe so but I wonder I, I'm pretty I'm pretty sure he is one of these pro police people that only want to get upset when a black person is accused of killing or attacking a cop, I'm pretty sure he doesn't make any of these speeches for white cop killers or white people that attack police. I'm just guessing, but I'm pretty sure on it because he just sounds like that type of person. And uh, as for the Olympics, you know, that was, it, it's always good to hear John Carlos and to uh, hear how he feels other athletes should be proactive, which is, which is good. I mean, it's not mandated, but it, it's, it's acceptable. And it is interesting how racism one of the, one of the one of the things racism does is turn turn you away from what you really want. He talked about wanting to be a swimmer, but because of attitudes, he had to uh, go into a chosen profession. Like how Malcolm X was scarred out of being a lawyer. When his when his teacher told him, you know, that a lawyer is not a good choice for him. He should be a janitor, you know, something menial. And that's where Ryan Lochte and the other white boys involved in criminal activity, because that is the term that should be used. That, that is the term that should be used, and it wasn't used a lot. People essentially being giddy. Oh, this is, this is just something like what they did. No. Public urination is a crime. Getting into fights, security guards, that's a crime. Making false police reports is a crime. But as we all know, this is what people tend to do. They make these, a lot of them make these false police reports when they're the ones 
who is engaged in criminal activity, and it's like you're not supposed to focus on that. And then to hear what should the punishment be, it's easy. You know, I mean, how there's absolutely no reason why this shouldn't, why this isn't being discussed. I mean, there is there's enough evidence of criminal activity. You you prosecute them, but somehow we just want to look at this as a silly trash behavior when it is anything but. I guarantee you, if Hussein Bolt lied about committing a crime and filing a false police report, action would have been taken. Medals taken. Everything. But as for Lockheed, is trying to look for an excuse for him to go unpunished. And as for Nate Parker, I feel sorry for him, you know, not just as a victim, but, you know, just the idea that time and time again, we see someone having to go to trial, a black male having to go to trial for having sex with a white female who he was supposedly involved with. And even though he was acquitted, that's not enough. I mean, if anyone else is acquitted of a crime, we move on. I mean, I can't remember the last time uh, the Duke lacrosse player was asked to be interviewed. I forget his name, but yeah, he has to speak about a case he was acquitted of. But meanwhile, right now, not 17 years ago, I'm talking about right now, we have white guys like Brock Turner, John Enoch, Kevin Fifield, who have actually been convicted of rape and have admitted to rape. And people don't want to destroy their abilities to earn a living. People don't want to uh, demonize them. I mean, even even when they even when they are found guilty, we we're told we should just move on. But, you know, not, not Mr. Parker. Hopefully he will not be further demonized. And that, that, that's all I have to say.
Uh, other folks that we have not heard from have commentary that they wanted to share. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, greetings to you, Gus, and um, all the other callers. This is Ross. Um, yeah, there were a couple of clips I wanted to speak on. Um, the first, I think it's the first clip you played, um, or one of the earlier ones, where they were discussing climate change and uh, birth reduction, um, which I would just say birth reduction for black people and specifically in non-white people in general. Um, I just I just find that to be just a bunch of nonsense um, simply because there is no, I mean, there's so much. As a matter of fact, they just had a couple, maybe last month or so, they had an article that I read talking about, like, the millions of tons of food, like, actually what they say is edible food that ends up being uh destroyed every every day in this country but by year it was like astronomical and his whole premise doesn't make sense to me i remember one time um we were having a discussion on tando radio show and they were talking about how uh the entire world population of seven billion people could fit on the island of madagascar so when they talk about like there's a shortage of space and all this other stuff and food and all this stuff it's all semantical nonsense related to reducing the population of non-white people and then I did some, some research, and I found that they actually said, scientists said in 2011, that the entire world population at that time could fit in Los Angeles. So as far as just the space, they would all take up if they put them all in one place. So, you know, when you really think about the, the crap that these white people spew when they talk about population reduction, it's all about eugenics. And um, it's just like a resurrection of Margaret Sanger and her policies and her thoughts and ideas all over again. Um, I found the the Nate Parker clip um, as, in regards to uh, what they're bringing out now and the timing of everything. It's just standard operating procedure. He's putting out a movie that's discussing probably the biggest nightmare in the white American psyche, which would be black people on any level um, holistically uh, going on some sort of revolutionary action against racism, white supremacy. And obviously they don't want that particular sort of information to be basically perpetuated to the, or given to the public for them to understand and dissect specifically black people to understand and dissect. And to me, it seems like a preemptive strike to destroy the, the, the film itself or anybody or try to discourage people from seeing it or potentially stop it from coming out. It kind of reminds me of on um, the spook who sat by the door. Um, I remember my, I had a, a friend that lives in the in uh, Detroit, or is from Detroit, and he had told me when he was coming up, when he was a young man, actually, when the spook who sat by the door came out, he said that the movie was in the theaters for less than a week before it was taken. To, like, literally relocate because of the premise of the film and the fact that they didn't want black people having access to that sort of um, revolutionary idea placed in, in the film. And um, to me, this kind of reminds me of, of that, essentially simply in the sense that they're just being preemptive rather than with, uh, in the case of Sam Greenlee, um, and rest in peace to him. He's a great ancestor. My son interviewed him at 13, and, and actually it changed his life. He loves that movie. But ultimately, um, I just feel it's a preemptive strike to stop black people from seeing anything that shows us in the light of uh, countering racism, white supremacy with counter-violence. And um, the clip with Ryan Lochte, uh, it's just, 
it's just interesting. I just think it's funny. Scotty was having a, and I were having a conversation. He has a, a new uh, it's Black Talk Radio community that I'm a part of. So we like post articles and have discussions. We were having a discussion about Ryan Lochte, and he had actually said that this this um, is, an, is a great example of what white supremacy looks like, and that the thing what he did, what Lochte did, is the reason why uh, white American or Americans are hated globally, and specifically uh, white Americans. And I said, well, actually, I believe that white people globally are disliked by non-white people, and he's just the American example <laughs> of what white people do. And I said, if you look at history around the planet, there's many people who have done the same thing that are white, just like Ryan Lochte. So the, the dislike for Americans specifically is because of the fact that this is a, a white American male that did so. But ultimately, this is just standard operating procedure that agitates the um, the spirits of non-white people globally. And he definitely agreed with that. And it made me think of something. I was watching my local news recently, and they had a commercial for, I think it was like a Serta uh, bed, Serta sleeping system, they called it. It's really a bed. And in the commercial, they had this white couple, and they had maybe about 10 or 15 sheep in their bedroom. And they're having this conversation with the sheep. And at the end of the commercial, they basically, tell the, the, the white female tells the sheep, we don't need you anymore because we have this bed. So we no longer have to count sheep to get to sleep. So one of the sheep stepped forward and they asked the woman, they said, um, they said, you don't need us anymore. So she said, yes. She said, we've been faking it the whole time. And then he said, you've been faking it. And then she said, yes, for the last three months, meaning that that's when they acquired this bed. So as of three months ago, they were faking counting sheep just so that the sheep were not offended. And um, when she said, yeah, for the last three months, he fainted and passed out. And I said, wow, this is a great example. If anyone is looking at this in a, in a codified manner about rhetorical ethics, that white people fake it all the time. So they can give you this impression that everything is one way and it's not what it is. And Ryan Lochte, in the situation with Ryan Lochte, is a perfect example of that. Um, you know, he was drunk. He wrecked the bathroom. He wanted to escape um, for escape the crime he committed um, unscathed, essentially. So he makes up this this idea, this um, story that uh, you know he was stopped by these. Uh, I guess he said uh, people who were impersonating police who robbed him at gunpoint. Of course, Brazil being having the reputation that it has for violence. It's going to make the story seem believable, and it was only because they had cameras where he was that they were able to expose his lies. And again, this is white people. If you don't have a camera to, to expose their lies, or you don't have multiple witnesses, and even if you have multiple witnesses, it doesn't matter. They're still going to basically get away with the crime because they're white. But ultimately, the whole idea is that you can't take anything that they take that they say seriously. They are the most deceptive, dishonest and criminal people that have ever walked on two legs, and I don't really get their people, so I, I call them subhuman, subhumans that have ever walked on this planet. And I think that this is a great example of how white people function on a global level on a daily basis. And um, thank you for taking my call, Gus. May I heard? Yes, sir. Peace to everybody. Peace to Gus, the host. Peace to the family worldwide and in this country. This is V from Central New York, right outside of Syracuse. And um, it's been a while. It's been way too long. But, um, wow, things things have happened. So uh, let's get started very quickly. Gus, uh, I 
when I first heard you a couple of years ago uh, talking about, you know, not calling people names, I was in a very different place mentally, and I didn't understand it per se, but I was studying Dr. King, and I noticed similarities between what you were saying and what uh, Dr. King would say about it. And I said, you know, it, it makes sense. We really shouldn't be calling each other names anyway. Um, but uh, I remember also that Layla uh, Africa said that we are very emotional people. And from situations and circumstances that I've found myself in over the last couple of years, I can say that emotions definitely get the best of us. And because we are highly charged people, uh, emotionality tends to result in explosive behavior towards an object or a person who we perceive as unlikely to threaten our safety and, and stability. So, therefore, we lash out at black people. What I would suggest is, as I think uh, uh, Gus, you know, you demonstrate wonderfully, um, is, is learning, 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 learning. But not just about white supremacy. Learn about ourselves. And there's a great book that I've been reading called Black Children, Their Roots, Culture, and Learning Styles. And there is a great bibliography in it. Um, I've, I've actually purchased several of the books recommended. And um, this, this book teaches, oh, well, it has taught me, so I can't say that I'll teach you the same thing, but it has taught me um, about why I think some of the things I think and do some of the things I do without really thinking about it. And it's, it, it's a book that I think of most black people, particularly young black people, read. It would make their lives a lot easier. Secondly, um, the question of the uh, viability and sensibility of blocking traffic in order to make a social statement has been risen, uh, raised, excuse me, many times by particularly white conservative people, but increasingly more and more by those people identifying themselves as white liberals. I have had to remind several individuals, some black, some white, of what Dr. King said in 1967 in his Macy Lecture Number 1, which I highly recommend. Actually, I highly recommend the entire series, but in the first he stated that nonviolence had moved to a position in a point where its usefulness had grown stagnant and that the black man had to make a broader statement to essentially grind the society to a halt and that it was necessary for uh, black people to do this in order to say to white people, we are not going to let you continue doing what you're doing to us and think then that you can continue doing business. Not going to work. He said this late 1967. You can find it on the internet. Thirdly, and um, lastly, the idea of a riot is something that, well, of course, we hear a lot about, but very few people know that the definition of, of what a riot is has changed. In 1828, 
Webster defined a riot, firstly, as to rebel, to run to, ex- or excuse me, to run to excess in feasting, drinking, or other sensuous indulgences. Two, to luxuriate, to be lightly excited. And three, to banquet, to live in luxury, to enjoy. And finally, four, to raise an uproar or by the by basically a hundred years later, I looked in uh, a new dictionary which I just found from Funks and Wagnalls from uh, I think it was 1921-ish, but number one, two, and three were compressed into one definition. Number four had become the first definition. And since then, that has been the definition of riot. Now, mind you, I don't believe they called them riots in 1921 during the summer, during the Red Summer when dozens of black communities were attacked, but that was what a riot became. And so we always have to keep that in mind when they're talking about riots. The individuals who are actually rioting aren't black people. According to their own guy, their luxury means that they are rioting. Thank you, and I'll mute my line. Oh, Gus, can I um, make a quick announcement? What's it pertaining to? Um, I'm actually having a speaking engagement. Oh, let's hear it. Okay. Um, in Auburn at Auburn, New York, um, I think it's 23 Chapman Avenue, Booker T. Washington Community Center. Um, I'm holding a worship service uh, for African ancestry next week on Saturday, 1 through 3 o'clock. Everybody who is in the area is definitely welcome. Thank you very much. And by the way, that's in Auburn, New York, Booker T. Washington Community Center. All you got to do is just Google it. It'll come up. Thank you. Appreciate that. Appreciate that. Uh, other folks that we have not heard from, if you all had commentary, feel free. Can I be heard? <clears throat> yes, sir. <clears throat> Greetings, everyone. Uh, uh, my first report is uh, uh, as a uh, high school football coach, uh, our first game is actually was an exhibition game uh took place uh about 24 hours ago well actually yeah a little bit more than 24 hours ago and uh going normal as high school uh football games go if anybody can remember going to them when they were in high school and uh then, uh, uh, in my opinion, as a result of racism, white supremacy, uh, the reactionary behavior of uh, non-white black people, uh, even uh, non-white black people who are considered to be young people, uh, which is a lot of cases with each other is not positive. Uh, erupted into gunfire 
Uh, actually, it's not unusual uh, at a uh, high school football game. Uh, in my own experiences as a football coach, it has happened uh, at least twice before. And uh, it's happened a lot more times uh, in between and the, you know, so it's not unusual. And I just uh, kind of like chalked it up to the results that are that uh, from racist white supremacy and the effects that it does on our minds and uh, self and, and, uh, and esteem, uh, self-respect. Uh, we uh, do a lot of uh, incorrect things sometimes with the direct intent of killing another black person. Uh, this is why I'm in so much agreement on what I heard uh, the host stating earlier about name calling, uh, because preceding a lot of dead black people at the hands of other black people, it is name calling. Uh, fire station, uh, yes, they're supposed to uh, treat a person coming into the fire station. That particular uh, call, from my experiences, uh, would have resulted into a, not necessarily an emergency call, but a medical call uh, as it, as it uh, should have been. Uh, but that does, that is very possible that that happens uh, everywhere where there are white people, especially into uh, not treating uh, a uh, black person uh, with the respect that they deserve. So I'm not surprised. Uh, matter of fact, with myself, I think years ago, I was retired even at the time uh, that I uh, uh, went to a fire station uh, close to where I grew up at my mother's house for my mother. She was in the car uh, to get her a uh, ice pack. And uh, you would have thought I was going there to steal the fire truck. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, I, a lot of times I... Uh, uh, don't announce that I'm a retired firefighter. That doesn't make any difference uh, about anything with white people, uh, really. Uh, and the, uh, only from a phony standpoint, it may it may sometimes, but uh, uh, I don't do that. Uh, but uh, I I had I, I can sense there was some sort of uh, uh, anguish into uh, relieving a ice pack, something that probably costs about. $2 at the uh, local drugstore. Anyway, uh, that's to be expected. Uh, number three, Mr. Parker's uh, rape case. Uh, as someone mentioned before, the timing, uh, I've heard that uh, contested in the saying, well, they allowed him to receive, I think, something like $17 million in a contract uh, for it to... Uh, go uh his, his quote unquote independent independent film to go popular uh but nevertheless it still probably was uh a situation to be timed with the advent of it going uh mass produced as it probably is going to be uh and to at the same time kind of like divert the attention from the 
direct counterviolence that Mr. Turner uh, enacted upon white people at a time when when it is not the first time, I would never say that, but illustrated uh, through uh, cameras and whatnot, black people getting killed uh, by uh, white people uh, who happen to be, uh, for the most part, most of them being law enforcement officers. Uh, and it, it, it may get a nigga some ideas, you know, as far as they're concerned, you know. Uh, so the whole idea is to avert it and uh, focus on the, uh, the, uh, the, the, the creator of the film, uh, even, although uh, he was acquitted of, of this and uh, in turn, the uh, white person committed suicide. Uh, unfortunately, there are some black people that I heard with my own ears uh, that uh, basically uh, stated that they uh, look at Mr. Parker in a negative way uh, uh, with the advent of, of this white woman uh, not getting what she set out to get, which is the case on uh, Mr. Parker. Anyway, uh, they're swimmers lying. Well, that's not, that's definitely not unusual out of white people. Uh, and the, the cold, the racist code word was crime. The idea that's easily something a white person is going to do is to focus on, well, I was robbed, uh, certainly in an area, uh, that is, the, that is the largest, second largest area in the world that uh, where uh, non-white people who are called Africans are allowed to stay, uh, and uh, they can't go into the community in the area itself to find something constructive uh, at all. So they would uh, basically give a whole lot of publicity to a white male, a lying white male, which is you know not unusual uh, a terminology uh, to uh, to uh, state that they were uh, victims of uh, crime. And in turn, they were doing the usual thing that white males do. Uh, and you could hear all of the gamut of excuses. Uh, young uh, persons, young, young people are going to do this and, and uh, all of the kinds of excuses. But nevertheless, uh, this is something that white people do no matter what age, in my opinion, uh, because they, they perceive or know that they can get away with it. Uh, without very little or no uh, retribution to it. Uh, I, uh, I will be very, I'm not surprised by a lot of things, but I'll be very, very surprised if uh, they even think about uh, uh, extraditing them back to Brazil for any reason at all. Matter of fact, even if they murdered somebody in Brazil, I will find it very, very difficult that they would uh, send them back to Brazil uh, at the worst for them of something even more heinous uh, that uh, they would do something to whereas they would suffer the consequences right here. But they definitely would send them back uh, to some place. Uh, although there are white people in Brazil that are in charge, but I just don't think they'll, they'll do that uh, because somehow it would uh, kind of like uh, be against the pattern of uh, of racism, white supremacy. Uh, 
Thank you. For sure. Uh, other folks that we have here? Yes, ma'am. Go ahead. Okay. Um, good evening to uh, just the host and to all the other callers and listeners on the line. Just want to say a couple of things. Um, the very first story that Ross brought it up about the uh, global warming and, you know, too many black people on the planet. I mean, that's how I kind of took it, you know, because keep in mind, Europeans' uh, birth rate, and this is Europeans in Europe and Europeans in the world, and I know in this country, their birth rate is, is I'm sorry, their death rate is higher than their birth rate, so they're dying. So, if, you know, you're going to talk about too many people in the planet that to, you know, reduce our numbers and stunt our, you know, our growth. So um, I just think that's just kind of foolishness, and I do agree with uh, Ron. I think this world has enough to um, – I, I just don't know if, 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 if the world can ever have too many people. I just think the divine creator created it so that, so that if there's a problem with food and all this stuff like that, that's man. That's the problem that men will cause. And I know, too, there's a push to reduce this uh, uh, population control, and I guess where you end up with very few black people and, you know, a lot of white people from, you know, things about to hear. Um, the other thing I want to say is um, um, thank you for addressing the issue about the name calling. And um, it appears to me, as you all probably know, I don't, I'm on my Facebook and I read a lot of stuff, and it just appears to me that as the heat is turned up on black people, and, I mean, you know, it's rough out here. It just seems like we're turning in on each other, and this name-calling is just, I mean, it is just off the chain. You know, every time you turn around, it, it's painful that we don't agree yet here I got to call you, you know, I got to call you a nigger. I got to call you a coon, I got to call you out of your name, and I'm just like, oh, my gosh. And um, I do understand what the young man said before about, you know, being emotional people, you know, volatile times, and, you know, in the sense, because that is striking out. But somewhere we have got to get a hold of that because people, you don't listen to people when people are calling you idiots and all kinds of names. So I just really do want to thank you for addressing that because this stuff is coming out. I mean, um, like, you know, to say it's just like it's, it's like it's nothing. You don't even think about it. And I do believe I remember listening to one of your programs in the archives of a guy in Washington, D.C., and I remember he was saying how something like you would say, he, he he was in the gang. I think there were some issues, and then he basically began to change. And he the one thing he began to change is his language, because he he was saying he was giving an example. He said, "If you always saying screw that screw that nigger, you know, you know what he was saying, and you know, blank 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 that nigger." This thing he said, it's, "It's easy then to do what? Pick up a gun and go on the other side of town, and you're gonna kill that nigger." I mean, it it just becomes so easy to move from name calling to death, you know. So I just really want to um, thank you for um, addressing that because it is off the chain. As far as the, um, <laughs> what's the Lati, whatever his name, you know, the golden boy, the one with, uh, the one who went, went to Rio, you know, with the saying that he was going to be the star of this thing and he's a swimmer. And, you know, so Phelps was getting all the attention. So let, let's be for real what we're looking at here. The white guy, he dyed his hair this silver gray color. Going down to, you know, be a part of the swimming team, I'm, I'm assuming he's a part of the team, and, you know, uh, he wasn't getting the attention that, you know, he felt that he should have been getting. And so when he, you know, to tell the story, oh, I've been robbed, I kind of look at, look at that in many ways that, you know, 
the lie that he told, you know, or we were robbed. But then the other thing is, too, is that, you know, even in the Olympics, I've been robbed of the attention that I should be getting. I've been robbed, you know, like I said, of the attention that I should be getting. But um, it, it's really just pitiful. And, and to me, the ultimate of white supremacy or anti-blackness is the, to call a 32-year-old white male a kid. Well, they're just kids, and all of them, all of them are in their twenties. So all of them, I think, are probably over twenty-five. All oh, they're just kids, just kids having fun, and that is is just like the ultimate. And um, I think that's about it. Thank you for taking my call. I'll meet my line. Hmm. For sure. Uh, other folks that we have not heard from, if y'all had commentary, uh, you should be with us. Feel free to chime in. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, yes, this is uh, Ken Steele from uh, Chicago, and uh, I just wanted to say uh, thanks to Gus for um, introducing this segment with uh, the instruction of not to name call, because um, I just noticed uh, people reporting on Facebook that the word coon is now back on TV. Apparently, um, it was... Uh, during an episode of Law and Order SVU, and a white character um, directed this comment towards the character Finn, which is played by Ice T. And I'm not saying that uh, black people invented the term, but I have seen a significant uptick in the use of the term by um, black people in, online. And that's where I saw it being used. Um, a lot more and then um, I just you're now seeing it on TV so um, it's coming back to get us and um, speaking of um, name calling and sources of name calling another thing that I've noticed is that more and more uh, black um, empowerment I guess you could say or uh, counter racist um, personalities from uh, the online space are now being invited to participate in discussions on cable news and uh, some network news discussions. Um, I'm starting to notice this more and more. Um, I, I don't know what to make of it. I suspect that um, racist games are going to be played uh, with this sort of exposure. So um, to those who are in this space and who are being courted by those outlets, I just, you know, have to say be very careful um, with what you're getting involved with by getting involved with those people on TV. Um, I also want to note that um, it seems to be um, uh, a week where um, – a uh, theme I'm noticing is uh, black people are being blamed for the um, false misgivings and uh, um, and the uh, bad behavior of non of white people. Um, with the Ryan Locke story, um, it was kind of implied initially that the people who robbed, uh, who allegedly robbed Ryan Locke. Uh, were uh, non-white people. And I'm seeing reports um, from a news source that reports on crime, um, Don Diva Magazine. They're saying that um, there were some black people that were, um, that were detained 
um, as a result of these claims. So uh, there were very real-life consequences for um, this erroneous report by Ryan Locke. And then um, Hillary Clinton um, was in the news earlier this week um, for claiming that uh, he was instructed by Colin Powell to um, have a private email server and um, mishandle classified uh, information from that server. So she was basically blaming a black person for this crime. And then um, a Florida man uh, was, uh, I guess, I guess he was found uh, by police after he uh, ate um, two of his neighbors and I think stabbed a third. And um, so he killed two of his neighbors, uh, stabbed a third, and they said that he was um, on a substance that they called Flocka. And um, the fact that they, it, it appears that they have renamed um, Chinese synthetic bath salts um, to this name, Flaca, and it uh, again kind of falls in this line of blaming black people um, for the uh, misbehavior, misgivings, um, and just uh, all of the nonsense that uh, these people are up to. So. Um, that's something that, that's, that's another thing that I've heard. And then finally, um, a news report that I didn't hear, um, being discussed, uh, in any of the clips, uh, early on is that, uh, the UN, um, earlier this week went ahead and admitted, um, spreading cholera in Haiti back in 2010, um, Apparently, um, the locals, since that cholera outbreak, had suspected that uh, activity at one of the U.N. bases was responsible for the spread of cholera um, in that region um, at that time. And um, now, six years later, uh, the U.N. has come out and um, openly admitted this. And uh, anybody who is familiar with uh, Neely Fuller, um, this is just uh, standard textbook uh, white supremacy uh, with respect to how they go into areas. And um, sure enough, after um, deliberately uh, poisoning and uh, spreading disease, in this area, they're announcing this and announcing a return to Haiti. So um, it's kind of the double whammy of sorts. Uh, um, so that's just something worth mentioning. And then finally, um, yeah, uh, I don't know if this was mentioned earlier, but um, the uh, Department of Justice um, recently announced changes with the Bureau of Prisons. Um, that they are eliminating federal contracts uh, with uh, private prison contracting services. So the uh, stocks for um, CCA and uh, GEO um, went down reportedly uh, over 40% in market cap value. So uh, following this announcement, um, somebody pointed out to me that this could be a ploy to kind of set Hillary Clinton up for any um, criticism that she might face um, 
regarding her involvement in the uh, passage of the um, crime bill uh, back in the uh, in the 1990s. So um, they may just go ahead and keep all those prisons open and just operate them under uh, the Federal Bureau of Prisons. So I don't know if that's um, such a constructive development as they're um, typifying it in the media, but um, uh, that happened. So uh, I guess that's all I have to report for now, um, and I will mute my line. Thank you so much. Yes, sir. Uh, other folks that we have not heard from, uh, any callers that we have not heard from have commentary they wanted to share? May I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Good evening. This is a female caller from New York. I tuned in late, but I uh, did get the uh, uh, report um, from the uh, privileged Asian speaking on the Black Lives Matter. Was that what that was, Gus? Was that a Black Lives Matter uh, event that she was speaking about? Uh, correct. In uh, Minnesota, where they were... Uh, protesting, they blocked uh, one of the major highways uh, there in Minnesota, and uh, uh, Jamar Clark, obviously, where they were not going to press charges for the officer that shot and killed him, and then uh, Philando Castillo was shot and killed uh, just a few weeks ago. They were protesting that, blocked the highway, and they were talking about how they explicitly talked about racism, white supremacy, and how they were using that in their protest to put white people up front uh, so that they would be the first people to be to come in contact with enforcement officials who were on the scene and then uh, this as uh, quote-unquote Asian female uh, and her not being treated by a black person and so how that dynamic of anti-blackness plays out in the uh, system of white supremacy. Okay, two things stood out to me. First of all, that whole story made me nauseous uh, because um, the thought of black people, of white people making some sort of cocoon around black people to protect them is nothing but a spectacle, and it's for sheer show. Um, and I'm kind of, you know, I'm exercising a little bit of VGQ. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not into that Black Lives Matter thing. I think it's a, uh, I think it's another, uh, uh, it's a theater. So, um, you know, white people get to talk, you know, say uh, to exonerate themselves. But I, I you know, I, I wonder how many of them, when November rolls around, how they're gonna, uh, they're gonna vote. You know, because uh, that's just how they get down. Um, my second um, other reason why it particularly made me nauseous is because Asians, Hispanics, and uh, in East Indians, any of the quote unquote brown people on the planet will never, have never had it as bad as black people. So I don't care if she's calling herself being a privileged Asian, a privileged Indian, a privileged Puerto Rican, a privileged whatever, Himalayan, you're not black and you can't identify. You will never, they will never be able to identify. Um, and the thought, like I said, of white people making some kind of cocoon around black people, that is, a, in my opinion, a huge act of racism because all they're doing once again is doing that whole white Jesus thing. We want to save the black people. 
the white saviors. They have no um, legitimate recourse space in that quote unquote black lives movement. And if it was about black lives really mattering movement, I would see something similar uh, to that of what the Panthers did, but I don't. So, um, yeah, that's all I have to say about that. And I'll mute my line. When you say similar to what the Panthers did, what do you mean specifically? Feeding people, clothing people, all on that, all on actively. Not running around protesting, waiting for somebody getting shot and running, running up and down the street. I'm talking about real community uh, upliftment. I don't see, I don't hear about any of uh, Black Lives Matter uh, uh, meetings, uh, events going into um, areas where uh, the gentrification and all these other things are happening and they're um, setting up programs. I'm talking about black people doing this, not white people, black people. And uh, that's all I have to say. I really believe that it's nothing but theater. I'm not, I'm not I'm sold or convinced on it. And that's what my melanin is telling me. But I could be incorrect. I'll mute my line. Thank you for the clarification. Uh, other folks, anybody that we missed, uh, please do not wait till the last minute. If you have commentary you would like to share, get your hand up now, especially if we have not heard from you. Uh, do not wait until there are five minutes left in the broadcast. Uh, anyone we have not heard from at all, you should speak now. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Um, yes, thank you, sir. Uh, greetings to Gus, the host, the listeners and callers. There was a few things that I heard in the audio segments. Um, there were, like, I guess, excerpts. It was that one where I think it was something that happened at a high school, I think Choctaw. I think that was the place it happened at. And I think that metaphor was used about spades. Like, because do you know if that was in Mr. Fuller's word, God, about that reference to spades or some ace of spades? I don't know what it was. I heard. Call a spade a spade. I'm pretty sure. It, uh-huh. I'm pretty sure it is. I don't have my uh, word guide in front of me right now, but I, I'd be also willing to wager a substantial amount on that as well. That spade is in Mr. Fuller's word guide. And he, I think, suggests not using that term. Yeah, I, I thought about that as soon as I heard that part of the uh, segment, and especially, you know, when it's an incident of a victim responding to um, racism, white supremacy, and that, that term being used, that is very interesting. And I also thought about how you was talking about when we are called these derogatory terms, uh, nigger and other words, and, you know, when we give a response, we're at a disadvantage and we are pretty much uh, made the villains or, you know, the people who didn't initiate the problem or the uh, incident. So, and then what I noticed also about that segment was they didn't disclose the, I guess, the amount of time the other student, I'm assuming this was a white student, like how long he was suspended. I guess, you know, they never really ever got to uh, showing that or explaining how long he was going to be suspended. And there was another segment where I think they were talking about the 
Olympics, and uh, the guy he asked a codified question, I think, when he used the word politics or politicism, and he said, you know, well, when we have these flags out here, isn't that politicizing an event? And like, I think that was racist. Um, on like, that might have been a white person who was conducting that interview. Like, they didn't answer that question. Like, it, it, like I guess the, the recording of that interview went off, and they just went to end in the segment. Like, okay, you know, that was that was our uh, interview with such and such. I don't know who the person was, and uh, I thought that was pretty interesting. And that's um, pretty much all I have right now. Thank you. Dr. Uh, John Carlos, that was uh, who was speaking. He was on the did the uh, what's recognized as the Black Power salute, fist in the air at the uh, 1968 Olympics in uh, Mexico City. Uh, anybody that we missed, anybody that we have not heard from at all, have commentary they want to get in? Hello, good night. Can I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Yeah, um, I found it interesting about the, uh, I think that was uh, Mark Duggan in London about the riots. And um, I didn't really hear anything about what happened to the police. I didn't know why the story <laughs> was focused on what sounded to me like a white person complaining about not sending their kids to piano lessons. I found that very interesting. And... Um, <sighs> Ryan Lochte. <laughs> Ryan Lochte, uh, I mean, that's like standard operating procedure for white people, lying and then blaming black people about it, uh, blaming black people about uh, the crime and um, what else? The Olympics. I, I thought it was very codified. Uh, just mentioned the guy's name inside the name already. What was his name, Gus? The guy that's Dr. John the, the Carlos. Olympics. Dr. John Carlos? Yes, yeah, Dr. John Carlos, right. I thought it was very codified when uh, I guess the, the interviewer was asking about, uh, uh, I guess the athletes not being political uh, uh, during the games, and he was like, you know, everybody's not him. You know, we do what they do, what they do basically. And um, what, what gets me about the Olympics is, like, What, how, like, black people are suffering worldwide. Black people are being shot in America. In Jamaica, the resources are not ours. Unemployment is high. The crime is high. You know what I mean? Like, suffering. So why is it such a big deal for somebody to go somewhere, run around a track, and get a meal? What does it do? For black people overall, I don't. I'm not. I'm, I'm not seeing the connection. And why is it important for me to be caring and to feel happy because somebody runs run around a track or do some flips or something? I'm not seeing the connection of why that's important at this time in this context. Um, what else I gotta say? I, I find it interesting too with the uh, the first step about the school uh, with the uh, the the the, the Sounds like the black females uh, siblings went to to beat that white kid up, and um, the cops said he made a statement saying that he's there to protect people who wants to to come to school to learn to meet. Applying that 
the those the the, 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 the brothers who, who did that did not want to learn at school. Um else? You say something quick sometimes I have <laughs> I feel like choose what I want to comment on, but I think I'm gonna I'm gonna stop it there for now. Thank you. Right on, right on. Uh lots can't uh Lots of things happening on the plantation. It was an interesting week. Anybody that we uh, missed completely? Anybody who has not been able to share at all thus far? Right. I will assume we got everybody. Again, do not wait till the last minute if you uh, have comments that you want to make sure you get in. A uh, person wrote in, uh, do you think they would have brought up uh, all of the accusations, allegations against Nate Parker uh, by him uh, allegedly raping this white female from 20 years ago if the female involved would have been a non-white female, particularly if she had been a black female. Question that was asked from a listener. Uh, I know with that situation, uh, and I saw a lot of different people talking about it, writing about it this week, uh, I'll make sure I preference my comments by saying I was not going to see this film anyway. Uh, before all of this had come out, I had said, I'm totally done uh, with slave flicks. I don't care what they make. Uh, it can have uh, my parents in it, grandparents, great-grandparents. Uh, I don't care what the story is about. Uh, I'm totally done. Any films of black bondage, I'm not watching. Uh, I'm not doing any analysis, any thoughts. Uh, I'm totally done with that whole genre uh, of entertainment, uh, if that's what it's going to be. That being said, um, I remember commenting when this all came out at the Sundance Film Festival earlier this year. Uh, at the time, I thought it was noteworthy that Fox Searchlight brought this film. I think it came up when Roz and I were discussing it. Fox Searchlight Pictures uh, paid that $17 million figure to Nate Parker for this film. Uh, and that is a part of the Rupert Murdoch empire. I, at least in my view, I think it is probably not a coincidence that right in the midst of Roger Ailes having to depart from Fox News and this big to-do uh, in the Rupert Murdoch empire about sexual assault that he committed, Roger Ailes, this suspected racist white man, against these white females uh, at Fox News, that this comes out uh, with Nate Parker. Uh, I am sure, I think even one of the reports that I saw, the representatives at Fox Searchlight Pictures, they said that they knew about this uh, when they paid for the film. This was not news to them, all of this coming out uh, over the past few days or what have you. They knew about this in advance when they purchased the film, and they were moving ahead with their production. Uh, I think when I wrote online this week, I said to me, this seems similar to the way that when the Ray Rice footage, when he uh, horribly assaulted his now wife, this was back also in the summer of 2014 when many things happened, uh, that they waited. They had that footage and they sat on it for about six months before they released it and they waited until it was in the middle of everything going down in Ferguson after the shooting death of uh, Michael Brown Jr. Then they released the footage and I think racists, that is one of their strategies where they will have information but they don't release it when it happens, they will wait until it can benefit them in some way, shape, form as to when they release that information and can provoke a response from people. Uh, I thought that one of the most important statements came from the I even have a problem saying alleged because this case was adjudicated. That just that typically does not happen. I mean, they say you are innocent until proven guilty. This was adjudicated and he was proven innocent. That should be it. It shouldn't even be alleged rapist. None of that done there was no appeal no nothing uh not guilty and particularly given the context of white supremacy 
They didn't say he had a super team. I didn't hear that Johnny Cochran uh, was on his legal defense to get him off. I didn't hear about any of that and even pause because this happened at Penn State. They have a history of raping and protecting rapists, child rapists that are not black people. And I remember, if you want to talk about rioting, I remember and saw the footage of a whole lot of whites rioting because one of the enablers of child rapists, convicted child rapists and former Penn State University staff, uh, Jerry Sandusky, when uh, the former head coach, Joe Paterno was fired uh, when he knew about all this and didn't do the right thing and even admitted that before he died, they rioted and were so mad. Uh, but all that to the side, uh, when they wrote about this in the New York Times, one of the most important lines was this white woman's parents, they said, I'll just read what they said in the Times, the woman's family sounded less convinced in a statement to the New York Times on Tuesday, which read in part, we are dubious of the underlying motivations that bring this present to light after 17 years. I feel the exact same way. It's not that they care about this white woman who was probably a racist uh, and committed suicide in 2012. I'm not all shook up about that either. Uh, in my view, just all of it. I've seen a lot of reports this week attacking Nate Parker and putting him in the same category as Bill Cosby, which in my, I mean, that's just a total disgrace. Not that I'm a big fan of Nate Parker. Like I said, I'm not going to see this film anyway. Uh, just if I have been, I've been through a court of law, I've had due process, not guilty to have to go through all this. I mean, really, uh, you got to tell me something uh, other than that I'm not encouraging anyone to go to see the film, which I'm not going to see. But this just all looks very coordinated, massive act of racism, white supremacy for many, many reasons. Uh, but the question was posed if we think this would be happening uh, if uh, the the female in this case, uh, if it was a black female or a non-white female uh, in general. That was one of the questions uh, that was posed. Uh, there was, I think, one other thing I was going to get in. Uh, doesn't come to mind now. Just I'm sure I'll get it in before we get to the end of the pro. Oh, the, the protesting, that was something that I was going to ask because I think at least one person, when they were talking about the... Uh, protesting and, you know, kind of not allowing racists to just do business as usual. Uh, that in terms of talking about what's happening with blocking the streets and the protests and what was, what was happening. There have been lots of protests, right, just over the last two years, certainly throughout the history of racism, white supremacy. Have you all seen any evidence that these protests, that they actually produce a constructive result? Um, I mean, even if we just want to, like, look at a recent period, like last five years, because we heard about what happened in London and Ferguson and New York with Eric Garner and now Wisconsin. Has anybody seen any evidence that, you know, this protesting, blocking the streets, the die-ins, any of that uh, produces anything constructive? And if so, what constructive result have you seen? And I, I even if you want to include, because I think Dr. Umar Abdullah Johnson, he said that it makes the problem of white supremacy racism, it makes it more apparent so that other black people who might not be thinking that this is a big problem that I should be devoting my time and energy to, I see these protests. So now I am more interested in studying about racism, white supremacy, and focusing time and energy on that problem. So if you think that that's been a result, definitely include that as well. But has anybody seen any constructive result as a result of any of these protests, questions, uh, anybody, if folks would like to respond? Um, can that be heard? Yes, sir. Um, I would say because when I was very young, my father used to take me 
Um, he took me um, during the 80s to the United Nations and all, all a whole host of different places when uh, different African countries were fighting for their independence, and I was there for those things with him, myself, my sister. Um, and obviously, you know, those countries gained some semblance of independence from direct um, white control, but they're still white control. Um, I think, and I've always said this, I've, I've said this quite often, I think that all of those protests are the equivalent of, um, I would say, holistic tantrums. That's what they look like to me. Um, when we, whether we're burning something down or if we're just out there yelling slogans with, with um, placards and signs and things like that, um, I just think that, to me, it, it's a, a, a shining example of our impotence as far as um, the fact that we're just going to go out there, say a few words, you know, maybe yell in, in some white people or some cops face for a couple of hours, um, potentially get arrested and abused. And then, you know, after that, you go back either to your daily life or after the anger wears off, you go back to your regular life until the next incident comes up. Um, that's why I've always, I just feel like um, the whole concept of codification and uh that united independent way of approaching the issue is a lot better. I think it's also dangerous. Um, these, these events, but there's all of these black people in one place like that, um, surrounded by law enforcement and, and basically military gear. I think it's dangerous for people to bring their children there. I think it's dangerous for them to be there. I think it puts you under the federal radar because then they have your picture, they have whatever, um, you know, whatever you have done at that event, and they'll start to formulate some sort of psychological profile on you. Um, and I just think it's not effective. I really don't think it's anything like the um, black female said that she sees it as racial racial theater. I think it's theater. I really, you know, and it's, it's no disrespect. Whatever they, the BGQ, if that's what they choose to do, that's fine. But I think that in reality, it's just it's just something to, and I don't think it really, uh, Dr. Umar, um, as far as what you said about Dr. Umar, I don't really agree with that. Um, I think the people who are out there, um, you know, agitating at these events tend to be the same people. I don't think there's many new additions to those groups. The only time I think that there is uh, an added number of people is if there's some sort of um, rebellion where they're looting and burning things down, then you're going to get, you know, people who are basically opportunists and saying, okay, well, everybody's, you know, burning stuff down, so I want to get on the, get on that, you know, that whole thing as well and start burning things and stealing the stuff too. But outside of those sorts of rebellions, I don't think you get any additions as far as people being made aware of it and saying, okay, well, this is a bigger problem than I thought. I'm going to do something about it. I, I, that does happen, but I don't think it happens as, that often to really make a big difference. That's my opinion. Thank you. Never heard. Yes, ma'am. I just oh. want to bring Puff in real quick because we haven't heard from her at all. Puff, did you, have, oh, okay. mm-hmm. did you have commentary? And then we'll get our caller in Ohio. Yeah, I did. Just a few quick comments. Uh, no, to answer the question, no, I don't think that really helps because obviously it doesn't help. Uh, you know, the protests don't help black people, not not as a group, because they still, look how many people they have shot. Hello? Yes, ma'am, we can look how many. Okay. Look how many people they have shot, and, you know, they protest every time, and people still getting shot. So I don't see any real difference. Uh, the protesting makes. But I also want to add a quick comment, you know, to the commentary that uh, Gus made a few minutes ago where he said, you know, do you think a black woman would, you know, get the kind of uh, treatment that Nate Parker's victim, quote-unquote, has has gotten? And I don't think the lady is a... 
I don't I don't think I don't think that a black woman would get not in equal circumstances get the type of treatment that this lady has gotten post mortem. Um, let's let's also add to the fact that a year after this incident, she gave birth to a child. So you know, she got pregnant like a few months after that, after it happened, and then you know, and then they say that she was on psychiatric medication also. And so I just don't think that that a black person would receive that, a black woman would receive that kind of treatment had it been equal circumstances. Like she got pregnant a few months later after that happened, and so no, I don't I don't think that that would that would happen. And go ahead to the next person. For sure, caller in Ohio. I just want to make sure that I get in. Pause for mm-hmm. the victims of Daniel Holtzclaw who did not get anywhere near this amount of attention for someone who was totally exonerated in Nate Parker. Daniel Holtzclaw was convicted and got like way over 150 years sentence. And I don't remember them having this much outrage and to do, and this is a disgrace. And this was an enforcement officer, not just some ragtag civilian, uh, caller in Ohio. Um, thank you. Yeah. You have a very good point with that, the Holtzclaw and Nate Parker. Um, I just want to say, to me, the answer to the question is no, because first thing, they, they don't appear to me to have a plan. The other thing, and, and this is, uh, uh, you know, because you have to have a plan, you're going to do something. I just think that something happens, people are out in the street, and then, you know, you're out there protesting, and, you know, whatever is done, and then people go, go home, go to bed, wake up the next day, and they go back to living. Those that work, they got to go to work. They got children to school. You know, life, you know, goes on. And so it, I, I think I heard it was uh, Claude Anderson, I think, who said one time, this is one of his speeches, his videos, and he said something about, you you protest, he said, and they know that, you know, are you going to march? They know that, so they, hey, they're going to get out the way and let you do your thing. And he said, they know because after you do your little protesting, do your marching, you go back, you go back to life as usual. But this is my, my biggest concern, and it's just something about what went down in Dallas that, that when I started trying to think about this, that just kind of, you know, something that for me, I may be out in left field with this, but just bear with me. I think because they know these things happen, you know, yeah, they're going to protest. You know, black people are going to come protest. Then I think people can use the protests of black people to do things, and then who you blame it on? You blame it on black people. Now, I, I mentioned this uh, on this show, on this program before we had the compensatory call right after what happened in Dallas. I don't believe Michael Johnson did anything that they have said he did. That's just me. I'm not saying things didn't happen. I'm not saying that people didn't die. People died. Things happened. What I'm saying, I think, because according to one report that I heard, that Black Black Lives Matter were protesting and that it was supposed to be, because remember the mayor said afterwards that the police, black the police were working with Black Lives Matter. And I remember that kind of like a flag went up for me because I'm like, I know that Black Lives Matter, that that's who they are, you know, that's who they're focused on. They basically said what the police is doing, you know, is wrong. So they're focused on police. So I'm like, oh, so now the police are working with Black Lives Matter. And so when I initially heard of this, when it was going on in Dallas, it was um, overnight. I just happened to wake up one night, had my radio on, listened to the news, thought like this was going on, and they were they had the one man. Well, it was Michael Johnson, you know, says one man did this. 
And I remember first initial reports, there were two other people, and one of them was a lady. And then it dwindled down to this one person. And so there was a talk show on, and the, the caller asked the man, he said, well, how would he know, um, how would, well, the question was something like, how would the, the person, Michael Johnson, I'm assuming, know where these police would be at to be able to do what he did? And the host of the show, he, he did some investigation. He came back, he says, well, the police were the ones who set up the route for the Black Lives Matter to protest. And when I heard that, I'm just like, wait a minute, something just don't sound right. So I'm saying that you, you come out to protest, there are people who can use those black people out there calling themselves protesting to do things, and then what? You blame it on black people. Um, I don't have any evidence to prove anything that I said, you know, but I, I just believe that Michael Johnson did not do what we're being told that he did. The lots of bomb. Remember, they had to kill him with a bomb, and then a picture shows up of him. His it's supposed to be his dead body on Facebook. So, uh, you know, so I just start looking at things. Call me conspiracy theorists. Call me, you know, and and I may agree with that, but I just think that these protests don't do nothing. And now I believe that the police, like I I just believe the police and others. When you black people out there call it protest to do things and then turn around and blame it on black people. And since the police, they're the ones who control all the evidence. You know, you have uh, videotape that the police do, you know, their, their, their cameras and stuff. You know, they keep, they keep that tape. They, you know, and they, and they don't ever release it. The McQuan tape in Chicago, that guy was still, what, two, three years ago. They just released that tape. You know, and then also tapes can be edited and tapes can be messed with. So, you know, the answer to the question, I know that's loud, but the answer to the question to me is no. And thank you, I'll mute my line. Mm. Uh, other folks have comments they wanted to make sure they got in if you wanted to respond to either the questions uh, about Nate Parker or the protesting or if you had other comments you wanted to get in before we wrap up. Can I be heard? Uh, we'll get Thomas in New York, then we'll get retired firefighter. Yes, sir. Uh, um, good evening. See, I wanted to say uh, what the lady just said. She was uh, absolutely right. Um, you know, these the new phase of co-intelpro uh, isn't going to be someone you know spying on you um, in your organization. Um, they use Facebook and Twitter, Instagram, um, Snapchat, all of those outlets now to do those things. Um, and if I'm not mistaken, Black Lives Matter is a hashtag. Um, those people that they put in the forefront, you don't know if they started that hashtag or not. It's something that um, galvanizes people using social media. Um, it's not a real tangible thing. Um what makes it real is these protests, and what makes the protest real is that someone tweeted or they Facebook that there's going to be a protest show up. And um, this, is, this is the same tool that was used to cause the Arab Spring. If you remember back in 2012, um, meet up in the square. Uh, everyone was doing it through their social media outlets, Facebook, YouTube, and things, and they go meet up in the square they have no idea that they're being used as a tool to be shown on our media to look like they're um, against um, Gaddafi or against Mubarak or whoever. So it's just a, a tool that they're using um, now. And I, I would really be very, um, very wary of 
um, anything like that. I'm, I'm not sure what their main objective is going to be with that, but it's, it's not going to be good. Uh, what I wanted to uh, make a comment on also real quick was the, um, the first clip you played about um, the population. And it's been a ongoing... Um, it's been ongoing for them to try to eliminate, decrease the population. Um, this carbon emissions thing is nothing more than them going to be charging us to breathe. Um, you know, they're going to give you a, how much carbon you use a day or how much you, you put into the air. Um, and it's, this is going to be terrible. Um, and it's going to happen because, you know, they're in charge. So just be very wary of these vaccinations. Uh, when you look at uh, how they're going to decrease the population, they say through vaccinations, um, they're going to pretty much, um, people are going to do it willingly. And um, I think that um, they, they said specifically in that clip they were going to target India with soap operas where, you know, birth planning is going to be very prominent just like they do here. And um, I could see that they were decreasing that population very quickly. I'll meet my wife. Retired firefighter. Yes. Uh, to uh, my answer is is no as far as any uh, any uh, uh, constructive uh, uh, act because of of protesting primarily what what is uh, showing to be is actually a re- reaction uh, to. Uh, uh, something that someone has done to you, uh, perceivably that was incorrect. And, uh, people like Mr. Fuller, specifically Mr. Fuller, uh, illustrates, uh, about time and energy and time and energy, uh, that's placed in, uh, into saying and doing something constructive or of or spending your time doing something of constructive value and uh, to protest doesn't seem to be something of that's going to result into constructive value because you are basically reacting now in order for people who who decided to identify themselves as white to uh, establish uh, and maintain and expand and refine racist white supremacy. I don't think they were reacting to whatever before whatever was going on with people before the system of racist white supremacy. They they weren't react. They weren't protesting against whatever non-white people were doing. They were they imposed an action, an incorrect one, and an and an unjust one that we know today as white supremacy. Uh, so logic, I'm speaking logic, unless somebody can tell me something different. I'm speaking logically speaking, uh, to protest, uh, uh, uh on racism, white supremacy is kind of like a waste of your time and energy, you know, as far as, far as not from a Michael E. Bonney standpoint, but from a standpoint of logic. You, you like wasting your time and energy. White people know that they are practicing racism and white supremacy against you. That's all I have to say. 
Uh, someone can uh, have a concise comment they needed to get in before we wrap up. When I say concise, like you can do it in 30 seconds or less uh, since we did our three hours. Anybody have a final comment they can get in in 30 seconds before we conclude? Hello, Gus, can I be heard? Yes, ma'am. I know uh, we don't do the, classif- the classifying, but um, I don't, you don't really pay any clips about, like, uh, Syria. How are those people classified? Do you know? Uh, I would suspect you probably have some individuals that would be classified, accepted as white there, as well as some non-white people. But I would have to uh, see if, if you're talking about the people that they are saying are, uh, quote unquote, refugees that are, you know, ending up in different places. And what are we going to do? And lots of hand wringing. I think those folks, at least most of the people that I've seen, I think they would be classified as non-white. Uh, now, maybe some of them, uh, they can get in and be accepted as white. Uh, I'd have to see the people specifically. But most of the time, uh, the way that I see these people being depicted, the specific people that I've seen, uh, they do look like they have some melanin. They don't look like, at least people that I've seen, I don't think they'd be accepted as white. Did I answer your question? Is that clear? Yeah, I was just curious uh, how come we don't really play any clips about Syria and about the uh, the conflict that goes on over in uh, the so-called Middle East. Uh, I think we have played a few. Uh, no, I have included a few uh, this year, I would say within the last two, three months uh, about uh, them specifically being uh, in Germany. I think there was one that I played specifically about that area of the world in Germany, them coming there and it being a problem, uh, as well as some of the other places uh, in Europe uh, where that was a big conflict and even that influencing what happened with Brexit um, and why they voted to leave the European Union. I'd have to, if you called me on it, I think I could put my hand on at least a few that we've played. I, I certainly uh, would agree we haven't played an abundance uh, of clips about that, uh, but there have been a few. Okay, thank you for your response. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, we will be here tomorrow, uh, 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific, Global Sunday Talk on Racism. Uh, like I said, I'm eager to hear from folks in the U.K. Uh, about their reflections five years from the London riots and what's been happening with the uh, anniversary and what have you, where the attention has been focused, uh, as well as some of the other things that have been happening here with they're discussing with the Olympics. The Olympics were just there uh, in 2012, uh, so be looking forward to doing that tomorrow. Uh, again, 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific. Uh, if you have questions, complaints, Uh, guest suggestions uh, or if you cannot find something in the archives you can drop us an email untiljustice at gmail.com untiljustice at gmail.com on twitter at untiljustice definitely enjoyed hearing from folks uh, this evening great commentary Uh, hopefully it was a constructive investment of your Saturday evening Uh, invest if you think the program is constructive racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com listener supported counter racist radio paypal button is in the top right corner if you're not in the paypal drop us an email we'll get you a physical mailing address uh thank you to all the folks uh, who have supported invested kept us on the air for seven plus years i uh, hope the program has been continues to be worthy of your time and energy Uh, With that, we will wrap things up, as I've stated consistently, 
sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy. One of the worst combinations in the known universe. Whites, alcohol. Uh, if you're going to be out and about, uh, I know it's summer is kind of concluding. So if you're kind of getting your last fun in before it all is done, you certainly do not want to lax in your codification. Racists, white supremacists do not take breaks. You cannot take a break from your codification. If you're going to be in a vehicle, you do not want to be under the influence. Uh, that is whether you're a driver, passenger, even as a pedestrian, you never know when it is going to be your day to bump into Daniel Holtzclaw, Darren Wilson. You want to be able to make phenomenal decisions to do everything you can to keep yourself as safe as possible. Really, whether you bump into a race soldier with a badge or no, uh, bumping into whites under any circumstances can be a dangerous life ending, life altering experience uh, make sure that you can respond appropriately according to whatever your counter racist code is alcohol is not going to help those situations be resolved in your favor that's it creator we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people victims of white supremacy we ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cow signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, What's your brother. Problem? You're a victim. Hey, I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my condition. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs> okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.